Okay, members, you're welcome to this meeting of the Education Committee. Can I seek the committee's agreement uh, to change the order of the agenda to take the Minister for Education first? Agreed? Agreed. Thank you. Okay, then, members, agenda item one is our ministerial briefing on COVID-19 related issues. Can I ask Assembly Broadcasting to remove all members from the spotlight and add the Minister and his officials? Can I refer members to a cover note from the committee clerk at page 15? Departmental correspondence setting out continuity direction number one at page 34. Responses from AQE and PPTC on public health considerations and post-primary transfer tests at page 68. Departmental correspondence regarding a further childcare support scheme at page 71 and numerous items of correspondence from schools and concerned individuals relating to public examinations, post-primary transfer testing, school closure, opening and special schools at page 78 to 117. And finally, correspondence from the Minister in relation to GCSE, AS and A-level examinations in 2021 in tabled items. Can I welcome Peter Weir, Minister of Education, uh, Ricky Irwin, Inclusion and Wellbeing Director from the Department of Education, James Hutchinson, Restart Director, Department of Education, Janice Scallon, Sustainable Schools Policy and Planning Director, Department of Education, and Karen McCulloch, Curriculum Qualifications and Standards Director at the Department of Education. Can I advise the Minister and officials that the session will be reported by Hansard and invite the Minister to make an opening statement of 10 to 15 minutes. I understand that you're available until 11 a.m., Minister, so we'll, we'll hand over to you and get started. Sorry, yeah, you're breaking up there, Chair, can I just check, because I had you on my screen a minute or two ago, and then you seem to have, everybody seems to have disappeared off it. Can you see me at all? We can, yes. Oh, that's okay. That's okay. Well, um, I, I'm not sure if that's a, a cursing or a, a, a blessing in, in relation to that, but uh, look, um, I suppose as, as even though I, I don't have you visually in front of me at the moment on it, um, uh, obviously the, the principal thing obviously is the, the audio connection um, on that on that basis on it. So um, then, with your indulgence, then I'll, I'll, I'll continue on uh, if that's okay. Thank you. Okay, thank you. I mean, look, first of all, I, I also um, join the chair sort of in welcome Aving to your new new post and uh, wishing Peter all the best in uh, his new uh, new role within the the, the assembly. Uh, so, look, thank you, folks, for inviting me to appear today. As indicated, uh, we have representatives from the department as well, Karen McCulloch, Janice Scallion, James Hutchison and Richard Irwin. Um, obviously, members will be aware that um, both from a departmental point of view and also an executive point of view, we've sought to uh, prioritise education and the needs of our young people. Um, and I think it's worth reiterating that any level of disruption um, we have faced a, a situation that because of the public health situation uh, that there have been wider measures that have been taken than I think any of us would have uh, liked to have had taken in that regard. Uh, and any level of disruption to educational opportunities uh, will be damaging to the long-term mental health of our young people. Uh, so therefore, I think some of the actions that have had to be taken have been done so on the basis of a, being a last uh, resort. It's also a case that in terms of uh, there's been a range of measures that have been put forward um, within education settings. Those were outlined in statements to the Assembly on the 21st and the 31st of December. Um, throughout, I think, those have, those have followed discussions with the Department of Health 
and have been cognizant uh, that schools could not reopen as normal in January. So a range of those measures which are ready, I think, to be put in place. We'd already given a direction uh, specifically on the issue of making face coverings compulsory in classroom settings. Uh, the work with the EA in terms of enforced, uh, sorry, increased um, enforcement on school transport. Uh, working ongoing with the Department of Health and widening test and trace. Uh, there is work that is ongoing on improving visibility of signage to parents, clearly with the fact that uh, schools, for the most part, um, will, be, will not be open to most pupils until um, after half term. There is some work uh, going on in relation to that, and there will be work with EA um, on that. Obviously, then, um, we've been in a situation uh, that uh, the further announcements were made to the Ad Hoc Committee on the 6th of January. Uh, and those were agreed, the, I think, the previous day by the executive and announced. Clearly with, within those, the principal um, issue is a shift from mainstream education providers from preschool through to completion of post-primary school for remote learning to be provided at home. Now, on the issue of, of remote learning, there has been for some time contingency plans that have been uh, developed. From that perspective, uh, at the start of this, uh, this academic year, there was a requirement in all schools to ready themselves um, for remote learning. And uh, this has not been, if you like, simply uh, something which has had to be stood up in a very short space of time. Uh, because clearly, uh, irrespective of the wider pictures regard schools, um, that uh, remote learning has been used by a range of schools throughout the first term at various stages where, where children have had to self-isolate. In particular, I think that all post-primaries have been in a very strong position to have that in, in place. And again, uh, as was indicated, to which you have, I think, some of the details, prior to the start of, of, of this term, we issued a, uh, the department issued a, an education continuity directive. So this was not, if you like, simply an aspiration that remote learning be used, but a, a legal requirement that is there in schools. We are in a better position, I suppose, in terms of remote learning uh, than some other jurisdictions, uh, because uh, with the C2K system, it means that we have a system that can operate uh, throughout, throughout schools. Uh, and while I appreciate that uh, within a Northern Ireland context, there will be some gaps within the market because of uh, the availability of, of broadband which links it. And also, uh, we'll be making use of the link officers in ETI to try to make sure that there is a, a, a monitoring of, of uh, remote, remote learning within that. Now, beyond obviously the, um, the mainstream education provider, special schools are to remain as open. I'm sure we'll get into the, the detail of that. Uh, obviously, the rationale for that and why there's a differentiation uh, is that particularly these schools are care for some of the most vulnerable children in society. And it's vital that we continue to prioritise their education. I think for, um, for many of those families, they are very much dependent upon schools uh, as their, their lifeline, both in terms of at times some of the medical attention that is, is used within those schools, the educational uh, background needs simply to be able to get through uh, the week, uh, and also that a number of, of children will be in the position that, particularly those from an autistic point of view, who will seek um, uh, that routine within their lives. Now, it is undoubtedly the case, and um, I think it is understandable that there will be some parents who will feel within special schools um, that given sort of at this difficult time, 
that they would, they're much their, their strong preference would be that their children be with them at home. Uh, and from that point of view, there will be no level of either sanction or admonishment for any family that finds itself in that position. And that, I think, is likely to result in a reduced level of attendance at those, those special schools. And we can come later on, I think, to some of the work that's going on within the, the sector. It's also been the case that vulnerable children and, and children of key workers uh, will have access for supervised learning. That is obviously on the basis of ensuring that there is a, a level, fit, level playing field, that, that uh, they're given that opportunity. Again, for some vulnerable children in particular, there is very much a need for them to be in school. It is clear, and we've done, started yesterday, sent out the, the first uh, survey, but certainly anecdotally, it is the case that um, the scenario is that, that it is, I think, strongly anticipated that the number of children that will be directly in school who are either key worker children or vulnerable children will, is likely to be considerably higher than was there in the first, um, in the first lockdown period. And I think to some extent that is also a level of reflection both of the fact that, that I suppose the level of severity of lockdown is not quite what it was in March of last year, so more people will be working. But also, I think very specifically, I think it does show that there is a, a broader acceptance of the uh, level of risk that is there with, within schools. I, I should say as well, again, that I think it's worth reiterating um, in relation to uh, schools. Uh, the rationale behind the closure of schools is largely uh, twofold. Schools themselves represent a relatively low risk. However, particularly during January, there was uh, a strong belief that across the board, which is a driver for a large amount of the, of the action that was taken by the executive on a wide range of sectors, that given the high level of coronavirus within the community, that there was a need to take every step we could to reduce overall the levels of contacts that people were having at whatever level. Secondly, I suppose the, the driver in terms of the R rate, in terms of schools, is very little to do with what happens within the classroom itself or within the school environment, where I think there's been some excellent work, particularly by our, our, uh, our education staff, our teachers, to make sure that it's a very safe environment, but around a range of behavioural issues which then happen when schools are open. So it means, for example, that parents and adults uh, have a greater freedom of manoeuvre, um, they're able to be out more, uh, physically speaking, even simply driving the child to school, uh, and any interaction will mean that this will drive up a level of, of contact. And similarly, uh, the level of, of socialization for many, um, many groups of, uh, from, a, from an age point of view um, will increase whenever school is, is open uh, as well. Uh, mention is made, I think, of the issue of um, examinations. Um, and uh, there is work that has been ongoing for some time by CCEA. We're trying to liaise, I think, with, uh, with stakeholders, with the trade unions, to make sure that, that um, we reach a point where we can find a, a satisfactory point in terms of examinations. And therefore, in terms of the detail of that, I hope to bring that forward by the end of the, of the month. It is important that all, our, all our, our children are treated fairly. And I suppose if there is one level, which is as a consistent theme that has been there in terms of examinations, uh, that um, the position is that the, the benchmark by which the 2021 cohort is uh, graded will effectively be the same as it was in 2020. There's a realisation that given the levels of disruption to children, whatever the exact methodology that, that is used, we need to produce fair results and one which uh, the two cohorts can be compared together. Uh, 
Childcare settings, as, uh, as you'll be aware, uh, including those based in primary schools, are to remain open. Child minors are also uh, allowed to continue their provision. Uh, and indeed, it is likely that while they will be in a position to absorb um, some movement, for instance, from the nursery and preschool sector, it will be a challenging time for that. And there has been provision that, that has been made and indeed uh, money that will be made available to the childcare sector, which has been found within, within budget to ensure as we move ahead, there is a level of protection within that. Uh, I've also agreed um, both that the, uh, we find funding to ensure that the free school meal side of it will continue uh, throughout this period. Uh, and also um, to ensure that there's that equality with what happened uh, before, that in terms of, of um, those substitute teachers who are effectively losing out, the same sort of scheme will be available uh, as was there um, earlier on in the year to ensure that, that, that they don't um, fall through the cracks, as I think, because of the, the way the system, the way things are set up within that. Now, uh, Chair, there's, there's a, I'm sure there's a wide range of other issues, but obviously just trying to keep the remarks brief at this stage. Okay. Uh, and I appreciate, appreciate there'll be a whole load, load of issues you want to, to bring up um, in, in connection with that. So I'll be happy to, uh, I'll be happy to, um, to deal with whatever the, the committee has in, has in mind. Okay. Thank you, Minister. Start my time now as well. Um, yeah, just by way by way of start, Minister. Obviously, um, pupils, staff, parents have showed amazing resilience and creativity throughout this pandemic. But I, I think it's important that we also acknowledge that there are pupils, staff, and parents across Northern Ireland at this moment in time who are exhausted, concerned, and and many are quite distressed uh, on a on a wide range of of number of education matters. Um, safety of school, safety of special school, safety of school restart, remote learning, ICT access, um, exam outcomes, etc. Um, so I, from the outset today, <clears throat> say they're obviously looking to you and to all of us for, for leadership. So I, I would ask that, the, and I accept this challenge myself, uh, that the tone and tenor of our exchanges today recognise that distress and, and show that leadership that uh, that the, the, those people are are looking for um, can I start then, minister by just a asking you to, to set out briefly the grounds on which you've deemed it necessary to cancel the a level and GCSE examinations well yeah look, thank you and uh, look I, I welcome your remarks I think in terms of I think for all of us you know, ensuring obviously that, that there will be a lot of anxiety out there, and I think uh, for all of us, I think we need to do all that we can to to meet that anxiety. I think that's very natural. Um, look, in terms of the examination uh, side of it, I suppose there are two principal drivers. Um, one that uh, that there needs to be. I think the overriding aim. I'd always indicate that I think. The best case scenario in all circumstances is examinations take place. I think two things have made that uh, untenable. In terms of covering particular elements of the, the course, and particularly as we look towards the, the June period, a period in which there's going to be um, six weeks remote learning, we hope that this is the, uh, the last period uh, in which this has to happen. But I suppose nobody can give any level of, of guarantee depending upon the health situation creates a level of, of uh, disruption to that, that the preparation, particularly for those June exams, uh, makes that uh, extremely difficult. 
Uh, from that point of view, while the preparation was in place for those who were due to do the January examination series, if you have a situation in which one group of GCSE students doing effectively exactly the same exam, and some have a choice, for instance, in whether they do it in January or June, to be treated in a very different way from the same people within their class uh, or within, uh, within the school system, I think would be wrong. But secondly as well, the, the overriding um, desire within this is also to ensure that students within Northern Ireland are not disadvantaged. Um, A-levels, GCSE and AS levels are national examinations, um, which largely speaking obviously take place in England, Wales and Northern Ireland. Particularly as regards A-levels, they're used on a, effectively a, a competitive basis with counterparts from other parts of the, the United Kingdom to compete for both future education prospects, for university, uh, for jobs, to be in a situation in which um, a unique scenario for Northern Ireland of uh, students doing examinations here and then trying to do that comparison with students elsewhere, I, I felt would be utterly inequitable. Okay. But also, one, one, I suppose the other, sorry, the other final point just in relation to that is, it'd also be inequitable because we have a scenario of a range of uh, students here who would be taking English board qualifications um, and uh, clearly, uh, and also to some extent Welsh board. So it needs to be a situation where there's also equity between students within Northern Ireland. Okay. And when will you set out the specifics of the alternative approach to grading for those exams this year? I, I hope to do that by the end of uh, the end of the month. Uh, there's ongoing work, and I think. We want to make sure that in terms of discussions with uh, stakeholders, etc. Look, there's no doubt because I think people had to move very quickly last year in different jurisdictions that we ended up with a, uh, a system which for a number of individuals in particular ended up getting a very unfair uh, level of grading. I think that was going to be difficult no matter what circumstances to be able to do that. I think I'm determined that, that uh, in terms of where any lessons can be learned that we don't make that mistake again. That means that there is a little bit longer to go before we, we create that level of um, absolute certainty, because I think as well as giving that certainty to students, it's also critical that we make sure as much as possible that it, that it is got right. Okay. Okay. Briefly then, uh, next question, Minister. Um, obviously, the other set of tests or examinations that is um, of significant public interest are the post-primary transfer tests. Mm -hmm. um, very briefly, in terms of a very brief summary of the actions taken by the committee. Um, the Education Committee wrote to all selective schools in May 2020 to ask um, what contingency plans would be in the, likely, in, in the eventuality of being able to, uh, not being unable to sit tests. Um, we, for the record, um, just factually in relation to this, um, received few uh, responses. Um, we then conducted a, an online survey in the summer um, which received a response from over 8,500 people, um, and the, the results of that are, are available online. Um, the, the highest scoring response from that survey was to not sit the test and to use non-academic criteria. Um, we asked that that uh, survey be sent to all teachers, Minister, via the C2K network, and it wasn't able to do so. I, I'm, not, I'm not revisiting that. I'm just, just stating it. And we had the motion in November calling on you to set out a contingency plan. But I'm just, I'm just saying that for the record of the actions of, of, the, of the committee. Yep. Um, in, in terms then of um, finding a solution this year, 
Um, you've, if I'm not summarising you incorrectly, you've said that the grounds for the cancellation of the other exams are, are public health um, no. and disruption no, no, to no, school-based no, learning? Said it's it's, it's the, the two grounds that I've, I've indicated in terms of that that really are the drivers are the issue of the preparation that would be there, particularly towards June in terms of remote learning and the comparability of um, our qualifications uh, within the context of um, sort of the overall sort of nationwide UK side of it. I think if it had purely been a question of how could we do tests in a way that was public health compliant, uh, you know, I think certainly I think that that um, probably would have been able to be done. So that those are not, uh, I mean, in terms of the, the principal drivers, it's the extended okay. period ahead of the exams of the remote learning and also uh, that side of it. Okay, and these are these are genuine questions, Minister. The, no, so, so, like so, that, do yeah. you you don't think that the the public health grounds or the the disruption to school-based learning grounds that apply to A levels and GCSEs apply to post-primary transfer tests? Then, well, the point is, yeah, well, public health applies to everything, which was why is why the case that consistently we've also said that any tests have got to be public health uh, compliant. Um, and that uh, in terms of judging at the time of whether a test can go ahead or not in of whatever nature, not irrespective of whether it's a transfer test, whether it's a public examination, or whether, for example, um, there would have been a scenario where some schools may well at various stages have had mocks of their own internal transfer. The key driver in that is assessing whether that is public health compliant and what the public health situation is at that particular time within that. Now, I think the other bit of distinction and but I've indicated particularly with regards to public examinations the principal drivers are what the preparation would have been levels of disruption as it compared to June and the wider national picture in terms of in terms of comparators there um, on that on that basis. Clearly if, if public health for example uh, are clearly in a position that if they feel that any test or any form of action is one that um, can you hear me okay Sol or yes yeah yeah Okay, no, I just sorry, just my my computer here suddenly said no signal, so I had a, had a brief, okay. Okay. brief fear that I disappeared from, from the ether. Okay, um, look, it is clear, it's clear the case that if there is a public health call to be made, it is public health that makes that that direct call. There is a requirement for anybody doing any action, and this is as irrespective of its education or anything else, to be public health compliant on that on that basis. Clearly, if public health and the Department of Health say. Uh, be it on this or any other issue, cannot go ahead on public health grounds, then that clearly means that it, uh, something cannot go ahead on public health grounds. That is, that is very clear. Okay, I, I'm almost out of time, so I'll, I'll just I'll, I'll put my position to you on, on this, Minister, okay. and, and seek your response that way. Um, it, regrettably, because as you've said and everyone agrees, no one wants to see school closed or exams disrupted. Um, but the I put to you that the, the prevailing public health circumstances, the extent of the disruption to learning, um, may, the need for certainty, um, given the amount of cancellations that have occurred, mean that you ought to use your power to extend that cancellation to post-primary transfer tests to provide a degree of certainty and work with stakeholders to bring forward an alternative fair criteria for entrance to grammar schools this year. Oh, okay. Look, I would just say, in terms of a judgment on public health circumstances, that ultimately is a matter where the call ultimately shouldn't lie with me or with you. It lies in that broader level with public health. Look, we have worked 
with a range of of, uh, of people. And I think look, there's been good attempts in terms of, of suggestions. And look, we'll maybe pick it up probably with other questions. Uh, there is, within that context, academic selection is both a, a legal entitlement, and I think it is also a question of parental choice. The parents have the right to choose that. But it is also the case that either for individual schools or indeed for parents, it is certainly not compulsory. So the range of options in terms of criteria to which schools uh, and schools were asked before Christmas to start drawing up uh, their criteria, particularly in light of a COVID situation, there's been a letter sent out to them um, again earlier this week. And it will be the case that from the publication on the transfer process that EA at the beginning of February will be publishing every school's position as regards criteria. And there are a range of criteria which are either test related, academically selection related, or non-academically selection related, which can be, which there are options for schools to, to go down. And obviously maybe we'll explore the, the detail of those. All of those, I, I think to some extent, it'd be fair comment to say, we've given advice to schools to take advice before they finalize their position because given probably the year that is in it, there's, there's no set of criteria which anybody selects which doesn't come with some level of uh, risk and some level of risk of challenge um, from a parent, for example. Okay, I'll, I'll finish, Minister. It would be interesting to um, hear your assessment of re- and reaction to some of the contingency criteria that is being published, but I'll, I'll move on. Okay. And, and as you I'm say, sure you, some, I'm sure you, somebody will ask yeah, that. No problem. Happen. Okay. Um, can I bring in Deputy Chairperson Karen Mullen, MLA? Thank you. Thank you, Chair. Um, thank you, Minister, and everybody from the Department for attending this morning. I also echo the, echo the Chair's comments on the anxieties that is in place in our schools, uh, our school community, in these challenging times, and the importance of us working together. Minister, uh, will AQE holding the test on the 25th of February impact in any delay of the admissions process that has already been changed? No, I don't think I don't think we can see any particular delay uh, within that. It's important then that any deadlines are, are met, and I think that that becomes abundantly clear. Whether that potentially puts um, any level of additional pressure on those parents going through AQE, uh, I think there is. Um, you know, I think there's obviously something to be looked at in relation to that. But uh, from the point of view of, of the timing of uh, parents applying into the into the portal. Uh, movement then towards the various, I mean, transfer itself in any year, even for uh, schools, whenever there's a non-academic criteria, is it, not a very quick process on that, on that basis. So the aim uh, throughout this is to ensure then that uh, in the latter stages of June, that, uh, that everybody receives their place. That then gives them an opportunity uh, for, uh, and every year this happens, uh, for some parents then to appeal that on the grounds of um, exceptional circumstances. It is likely, I think, that come what may, whatever way we land with things this year, given that, that COVID, I would anticipate that uh, there will be a much greater number of, of parents appealing under, under exceptional circumstances, probably citing some elements of, of COVID within that. So there will be, I think, uh, a level of additional support that will be given to the appeals process because inevitably, Whatever happens, there'll be more. There'll be more appeals. So, Minister, I've been informed that there is a potential um, uh, for 
uh, more than we usually have, um, aside from the, obviously taking into account the appeals, but aside from that, in relation to this. So, just wanted to get the insurance from you today that the 20,000 pupils under your care will not be adversely affected by a private company um, uh, or delay or impact uh, our public education admission process. No, there will, no will not be adversely impacted uh, because I do with a private company. I suppose we should be in a position to move ahead. What I suppose is one slight level of unknown within this, which could, from any angle, disrupt the, the system, uh, would be, for example, um, if you got someone, for instance, trying in whatever shape or form because they disagree with what a school has done or whatever is trying to take some form of legal action you know and that can always be some level of spoken the way we don't know precisely we have a reasonable idea that that hopefully as 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 time to move on throughout this academic year that things should ease as regards covid that, that we should be in a better position but i suppose from that point of view no one give an absolute 100 percent guarantee but there shouldn't be there shouldn't be disruption uh, to the the timetable yeah. Minister, has school staff um, been added to the vaccine priority list? And if yes, uh, when will that rollout roll out start? Well, the position in terms of, I have written, I've spoken on this as well. And look, I think broadly speaking, I would share the views of probably most of the, of the committee. The position at present is that the, the vaccination list and in the letter that I wrote to uh, and setting out the, the uh, arrangements for the first part of, of 2021 to the uh, executive. I indicated I'd be bringing forward a further paper on um, the issue of vaccinations. I believe there needs to be a level of prioritisation. Uh, at the moment, that is decided by the JCVI group, of, uh, or J, yes, it is. I think it's JCVI, maybe I always get the sort of the acronyms uh, from other departments slightly mixed up in, in relation to it. So it's decided on a UK-wide basis. And look, I think the executive needs to be uh, arguing, first of all, I think that, uh, that there needs to be a level of prioritisation given. Now, we are in a rollout at present where I think uh, the, the most vulnerable groups are likely to be then covered uh, by some stage in, in February. I think beyond that, the timing has not then uh, been established. There does appear to be some shift in movement on a UK-wide basis to recognise the importance of uh, education and the teaching profession. We shall have to see, but I would like to see the executive whole lobbying in that UK-wide context, because I suspect that we won't go on a solo run as regards vaccinations. But I, I think um, there is an important thing, um, I think partly for the, the, the direct safety, but also in trying to ensure the continuity. Uh, the, the figures would suggest that, that be it here, um, or indeed other jurisdictions, that teachers uh, are largely being on the same basis in terms of their, their, their levels of positive tests. But I think the big advantage of vaccinations for education staff would be at least in terms of the pure provision of education, it would then be able to, to carry on on the basis of, of uninterrupted in terms of what schools could directly provide. That's not saying that we won't still have cases where at, at, at student level, there are some levels of either positive tests which takes on some students out of the, the equation. But okay. at least if we had a situation where the staff are vaccinated, then that would, that would mean then that that would be. So I think yeah. I would, I suspect, largely at one with you on that, on that particular issue. Yeah, I suppose it, it won't be much uh, comfort out there for our school staff to hear that today, uh, Minister. Um, it won't help me their anxiety and concern. So it brings me on to my, my last question, Chair. 
uh, and particularly for our special schools um, who are fully operating, what extra resources and support has your department and education authority given to special schools since last week, Minister? Well, from that point of view, there's opportunities to bid for additional finance. We've been told by the finance minister he's currently seeking any level of bids. We are meeting, and it may be worthwhile, once um, I've said a few words, I'll, I'll bring in um, Ricky Irwin, who's been dealing directly with, with special schools. I think the issues as regards special schools, indeed any schools, is there is a very limited amount, if anything, which you can put in something which makes a direct difference within the school itself. There isn't some additional measure. What I think we're keen to do is work closely alongside special schools. And um, last Friday, and this will happen on a regular basis, uh, officials have been meeting with the special schools, um, with a number of the, uh, the principals within that. I'll maybe let Ricky maybe um, expand on that with, your, with the indulgence chair. He can give a little bit more, more detail. I think from that point of view, there isn't, I think, very obvious routes where here is some additional thing which can be brought in, which particularly would help special schools more than any others. We will see a situation in which I think some of the pressures will be eased because, uh, first of all, I think in terms of transport, because the levels of transport over the next number of weeks um, will be a lot less of a requirement in terms of uh, mainstream education. So there will be able to be a certain amount of redeployment to allow uh, that to be spread more, more evenly. And also the fact that the number of um, pupils that will be coming in will also, I think, inevitably lessen. That will reduce it. But there isn't, I don't think, a magic bullet. But if there's any issue which is raised, which we can meet in relation I don't, Ricky, if you want to come in just to give a wee bit of further detail just in relation to that. Sure. Uh, thanks, Minister. Can everybody hear me okay? Yeah, yeah but I, I'm going to need the uh, respondents to make their answers more concise or we're never going to get right. through the questions. Apology, okay, apology, thanks. Apology, thanks. Yeah. Thanks. Ricky. Uh, right, okay. Yes. As the Minister um, said, out, we uh, met with the Strategic Leadership Group for Special Schools uh, on Friday past and discussed. Um, a range of issues with them. We had representatives uh, from the EA, the Public Health Agency, uh, and other um, departmental colleagues. They raised a, a range of issues around the coding of pupils, um, clinically extremely vulnerable pupils, transport, remote learning, vaccination, testing, um, meals. So we worked through um, all of those issues with them. Um, we have committed to meet them on a fortnightly basis going forward. Um, with uh, with the same organisations involved, and um, we have issued updated guidance um, uh, through the EA. The department is also updating guidance. We have issued a contingency framework for vulnerable children and young people to all schools, which provides um, support and guidance to schools. Um, and I suppose the most important thing that we're doing right now is we're providing ongoing support to all those school leaders uh, and they have been given direct contacts in the EA to discuss any um, emerging operational issues uh, that, that they need some assistance with. Thank you. Uh, just finally, Chair, and I'll be really quick. 
Minister and Ricky that meeting should have happened before Friday. It should open happen before the reopening and I understand the pressures we're under, but we can't couldn't expect our special schools to open without that. Minister, you had said that nothing that will make a direct difference. Um, I'm sure there's quite a bit, particularly extra support in relation to staffing because they're dealing with a lot of staffs staff absences and redirecting yeah. staff on there and ensuring that health therapies and all our support continue and not just lefty education. No, I think look, health, health therapies, and Ricky can correct me if I'm wrong, will be continuing. The issues regarding staffing and if there is any additional staffing can be put in, we'd be more than happy to do that. And as part of the overall package that will be sought in terms of additional COVID money, we look to see whether there's any additional staffing can be put in. I think the particular problem as regards um, special schools and staffing is that there's a, a specialist quality so that simply, for example, the, the level of availability that is there um, and indeed the sort of general background that would be there, for instance, from such a list that could be drawn in within a mainstream school where there's an absence isn't there, certainly to the same extent, there's, there's a much um, smaller group of qualified teachers uh, that would be there on the special on the special needs side of it, that means it's not simply a question of if we put in X amount extra, that simply there are necessary the people to draw in to that extent. And to be fair, I didn't say that there wasn't anything that could be done. What I'm saying is it's difficult to think of many things where there can be a direct additional bit, but we're certainly open. And I think from the point of view of resourcing, particularly as regards COVID, I think there are the resources there. It's just there are range of things. There isn't some additional form of protection uh, generally speaking, which would uh, be a game changer, if you like, for special schools. But if there are specific requests, we're happy to to meet those if, if they're practical in that regard. Okay. Thank you, Chair. Thanks, Karen. Robin Newton, MLA. Uh, thank you, Chair. And uh, thank the Minister again for attending and being indeed very generous uh, with his time this morning. I wonder, uh, Minister, could I first of all uh, indicate um, and I can only speak on behalf of uh, schools that I contact or contact me within East Belfast and indeed appreciate the, the commitment uh, of, of the school from the principal to the Board of Governors to uh, every other member of, of teaching staff. I think you, Minister, are fortunate in having uh, a committed uh, staff uh, directly in, in the schools and indeed the innovation levels of how our schools have addressed the many problems, uh, I, I think, has been just, just amazing. We need to support them. Could, could I, Minister, ask, uh, in terms of the prioritisation of vaccina vac vaccination, yes. we, we, and we understand, and, and you made the comments in the, uh, the, the, the chamber uh, about how that comes about, but if I read the mind of the committee members correctly, I think we would all be supportive uh, of, of the prioritisation for our school staff. Uh, and it might be, uh, with the indulgence of the Chair, it might be a, a, a short item we can add to the agenda on how we as a committee can support you uh, in, in, in the work via the executive. Uh, so. The, but those are not my questions, uh, Chair. Uh, I would just three areas. Um, can I ask, Minister, is there a way of testing the effectiveness of remote learning 
uh, as we go through these, these, these months and the work that has been done uh, there and the progress that pupils are, are making. <clears throat> Much has been covered there in the um, special schools and attendance at special <coughs> schools uh, and a lot of concentration on uh, and good, good work being done via the, the principal's leadership group in special education uh, and I think that's excellent. But is there a need, Minister, to give parents the confidence that uh, they can safely send their children uh, to, to school? And just my third and final question then. On the 21st of December, um, <coughs> Dr. Barr, Dr. Darren Barr of AQE, wrote to the committee indicating that the health and well-being of any candidates attending uh, AQE testing, that indeed that AQE will follow all relevant and current health and safety guidance from PHA and the Department of Education. That was on the 21st of December, Minister. Can I just ask that there is ongoing contact between AQE, uh, PHA and your department uh, as we work towards uh, what has been established as the next testing date? Yeah, just on those, those very briefly, I think, broadly speaking, monitoring of uh, remote learning, I think it's a piece of work that will be done by ETI and trying to make sure both, look, I think there's both the precisely what's happening directly on the ground, but also then doing a level of assessment uh, on that. I think it is undoubtedly the case. I think one of the major challenges is to ensure that there is absolute consistency uh, across the, the ground. What I would say is I think that the experience of the first lockdown was a sharp learning curve. I, I would concur with the remarks about the um, how innovative um, and indeed dedicated the, the workforce is. I think for all of us facing a scenario in the spring of last year, there was a steep learning curve, particularly with regards to remote learning. I think some of the dividends of that are, are, are paying off in relation to that. As regards parents, yes, I would say that, that schools are a very uh, safe place uh, within that. The, the actions that are taken are not on the basis, I mean, nowhere is entirely risk-free, but the actions that were taken were not on the basis of particularly what was happening in the classroom, but the wider context to which schools being open contributed to the uh, situation. Similarly, there is ongoing dialogue with the range of stakeholders as regards uh, transfer. It is critical that any test that, that goes ahead, and ultimately it's up to the organisation whether that, that goes ahead, there's been a different approach taken by PPTC to AQE, is entirely compatible with, with public health guidelines. And indeed, I think where, where possible, any action should always strive to go beyond what is there in terms of public health guidelines to, because I think there's a job of work for AQE also to provide at times levels of reassurance to the, the public and I think part of that is on the basis of what additional actions they can take uh, to make sure now, for instance, it was put out a good while ago that it would mean that, that for instance, anybody doing the test would be sitting uh, entirely within their, their own classroom bubble in that regard. If there's actions that can be taken that go, can go well beyond that, then I think that those should be taken by, by AQE. Could I Minister, just to ask you about the, is there any direct contact between the department and the parents of, of pupils at special education schools, or is that uh, communication only from the school to the parents? 
well, I think I think the principal link is between the school and the parents because there'll be individual circumstances. And again, part of it as well from that point of view, but there will be communications, I suppose, in the broader level, go back and forward. Uh, clearly, I think one of the advantages sometimes in Northern Ireland, we're quite, um, I think we're quite a contactable society. We're relatively small. We, we like to think of ourselves as a very special place, but we are a very small place and means that one of the advantages, those those levels of direct contact at whatever level, at special school parents or whatever, directly with the department, directly at times, uh, and contacting either private office or others, you know, th there is that flow of, of information that, that goes directly on. And also specifically in terms of children with particular vulnerabilities, um, Ricky and his team will be working with health to make sure that, that those beyond something the special schools themselves, that. Uh, you know, that we make working particularly with social services, for instance, that it's important that that, that level of liaison is happening on the ground um, in terms of all those individual cases as well. well that's almost time, Robin. Okay, thank you, you right. Thanks, thanks very much, Robin. Thank you, uh, Daniel McCrossan, MLA. Yes, uh, thank you, Chair, and um, thank you, uh, Minister. Uh, welcome to the committee today. Uh, Minister, like colleagues in the committee, we have been inundated with uh, staff and, and teachers from special schools who uh, remain open and are very concerned uh, that uh, not enough has been done to protect them uh, in uh, the school environment and there has been uh, no uh, sufficient action by the department to put in place the protections and uh, resources that are necessary. Um, nor is it clear if any further uh, teaching staff have been employed or what has been done to ensure that adequate distancing is in place given the new variant of the virus. So we'll go straight to a few questions, Minister. Uh, uh, will you now, Minister, as a matter of the most urgency, establish, and I've asked this question before in the Assembly, establish a working group composed of special school principals and public health experts to examine the special circumstances these staff in special education needs schools work in and devise additional and improved safety measures to protect uh, staff and pupils. Daniel, from that, we are meeting regularly, as indicated, and indeed that's been put on a structured basis with the special school principals in, the, in that regard. Look, I think it is very understandable that there is a high level of anxiety out there. I think that is shared across uh, society. What I would say, first of all, in terms of um, specifically at present on the issue on the, the new variant, it is clear that while I think there's acceptance that it is here in Northern Ireland, it is not in as prevalent a form as it is anywhere else. That is why, for example, that in terms of the R rate, um, we were looking probably directly after Christmas or even a few days ago at a situation where the R rate was sitting on 1.8. Uh, it's now down to about 1.1 or 1.2. Specifically, we will work with, with anything. I, I, I highlighted that, that if there are additional staffing in terms of resources that can be brought in, the principal constraint on that is not finance, it is not the unwillingness to do that, but there is, um, shall we say, to draw a certain level of analogy within mainstream schools, within the, the, um, the Northern Ireland Subject Teacher Register, there is a wide pool of people who would be qualified to come in and um, substitute um, in, uh, in mainstream schools and mainstream settings. There's a lot of, shall we say, the subject bench is quite large. It is a lot smaller within the, the context of those who are qualified. And you can't, 
just take somebody who's general experience and throw them into a special school in relation to that. Again, as most of this comes down to whenever we're saying, I understand anxiety on the ground, from the point of view of distancing, if schools are to operate and you're having a level of um, social distancing, it is difficult for schools to operate at full capacity and have that opportunity um, to do that with high levels of social distancing. Uh, however, what I would anticipate during lockdown is we will see um, a considerable reduction um, of the number of children going through the, uh, through the, the gates uh, of uh, special school. I think that will be inevitable, um, given probably that for many parents they will want to keep their children at home at this particular particular time so that will ease things on that basis in terms of a specific safety measure i'm very open to any suggestion which is put in place saying here is a specific safety measure i i think we need to get beyond just the the general references to we want sufficient put in we want you know we want to actually drill down in terms of where people have specific suggestions and if there is something as practical, we'd be very happy to take that on board and implement. Yeah, that. Um, it, 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 there's a bit of a problem that we do these things sometimes to talk a little bit in generalities. Yeah, I appreciate that, Minister. I'm being very specific in, in, in my point, and that is that the uh, special school principals, my, my, my suggestion is the special school, school principals uh, work with the public health authority, the public the PHA um, uh, experts, uh, to discuss how we can ensure the schools are safe. I think that's necessary. I don't think you're doing that at present, or, or the event in place at present. And it's a suggestion I would believe strongly that that would be the way forward. And from that point of view, look, I am sure, um, for example, in terms of the regular meetings, there's no problem in having, and they would be happy to encourage. I, I don't know whether, Ricky, just directly, whether there has been somebody directly at the table whenever those meetings have been there. If they're not, then I think we will do what we can to ensure that somebody from public, from people from public health, um, are there. But look, I think. The problem is we've got to be careful that we don't create an expectation that there is some magic bullet which will mean that here is a specific specific set of measures which will suddenly elevate um, special schools to be in a different place in terms of a level of safety that would be there compared to, to mainstream schools. You know, if there was a specific measure, I think, which could be taken, uh, which would mean that there would be that additional level of safety, then I think, actually, to be honest, we'd be looking to take it in, in all schools on that, on that basis, but with public health and special schools, yes. Yeah, yeah. special schools are different in that there's a higher level of infection uh, with the special school staff because they're directly exposed to vulnerable children, Well, Daniel, do you have direct evidence of that? Because across the board, the evidence in terms of teachers from all sectors, and, and this is whether it's primary, post-primary or whatever, would suggest that the level of positive testing for COVID is pretty much the same throughout in connection to that. So uh, let's not make supposition that. Just on that, I appreciate times against it, but the PHA figures actually show that. Uh, it shows that over 70% of infections in special schools are among staff and are a great cause of concern. Yeah, but PHA, 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 PHA have, have also said, and I've been on direct calls where they've given evidence, and the same elsewhere is. There's a considerable level of um, cross-contamination in terms of infection between adults. There's a considerable level between pupils. There is very, very little evidence of um, and very rare cases where there is uh, a direct transfer between the, the children and staff. It's not saying it doesn't happen, but that is actually very much the, the, the rarity in terms of public health uh, 
the bigger issue is probably the the, the interactions between adults and between children. Did, did the PHA specifically say that about special schools, Minister? They, they have said that throughout in terms of um, they have given assurance. I was on a call where I think it was a uh, a webinar in which um, I think it was one of the senior figures at the PHA was talking to that specifically as regards um, uh, one of the school's bodies. It's the same evidence I think has been largely there from the European Centre for Disease Control. Uh, SAGE has given, I think, indications that, that there is no particular additional evidence of higher levels of transmission uh, within teachers in, in connection with that. But the, you know, the, it, the point is to some extent is uh, you know, are there, from a practical point of view, and we are very open to this, if there are particular practical suggestions which can provide some level of both additional reassurance or additional protection for people, it's just there isn't particularly, I think, uh, there aren't obvious interventions which can take, but again, if there is any suggestions in relation to that, we would be more than happy to um, implement them on that, on that basis. Okay, Daniel, that, that's, that's your time, Daniel. Okay. Sorry, okay? that, that's your time. If we have time at the end, I'll bring you back in. Okay. Uh, Robbie Butler, MLA. Thanks. Hello, Mr. Back in, boy. Minister, thanks for, for coming over and saying us um, and some time today. I will devote half of my time, if the chair reminds me, to HV, if you don't mind. But before I get there, before I get there, I'd like to just ask you a few short questions, and I really appreciate. Yeah, I'm trying to, get, to maximize your time. I'll try and give short answers. Right, okay, so just with regard to your announcement at the start of the week, I think it was about resourcing schools further uh, with some more investment for Chromebooks, uh, Wi-Fi and that type of stuff. just want to go back over maybe the um, Chromebooks that ha were already sourced and, and delivered. Um, have, has the initial batch been fully ruled out and are there any um, threats to Chromebooks and that type of uh, resource being put into the hands of those that need it or would you be confident that that has been Look, as far as far as we can, we've reacted to where demand has been there. Um, I think in terms of the total devices, there have been 24,000 made available. The vast bulk of those have been asked for and received within that. I think there is a, a pool somewhere between 500 to 1,000 that still uh, can be drawn down on. So the, the requests are, uh, are in there. I think before Christmas, uh, the EA started, indeed, I think in 2020, starting a process of procurement, I think, with the aim of getting, uh, and I think that is in, in track of getting an extra 10,000 uh, devices. And uh, it is also the case that there will be opportunities that finance ministers indicated that um, whether there will be a level of rollover of COVID money, but there, there is a pool of COVID money across the executive which um, can still be, be spent. And as such, I think uh, he was looking bids in, really, I suppose, by the end of this week. Uh, on that basis, and as part of that, we're looking to then see, in terms of diverting levels of resources and bids, uh, as to whether then there's further bid can be made directly for funding for um, additional um, sort of devices and, and materials on that basis. So, yeah, there will be there will be some additional support that will be will be out there. And and McCollum, this is basically just to make sure that the procedures are in place to get them distributed as fast and as fair as possible. So that, that's good. Um, next question, hopefully it's really simple. BTECs and uh, BTEC exams, are they still going ahead or are they going to be treated like GCSC and all levels? BTECs directly fall under the Department of the Economy and mm -hmm. has other qual uh, qualifications. I think that the BTECs, there was, from a national basis, there was a level of flexibility was given to uh, the host organisation. Generally speaking, while some will be done through schools, quite often through colleges, 
so from that point of view, I think that that level of flexibility, but the, the detail of that in terms of vocational qualifications probably are most directly related then to um, uh, our relation to that. I should say as well, sorry, to clarify from an earlier point in, yeah. in relation to, to that, sorry to take up your time. In terms of the meetings with special schools, uh, PATR are directly involved with those, those meetings as well. I appreciate it and bring Ricky in directly at, at that point, so they're, they're at the table. I'm not be taking that out of my time. That was Daniel's question. No, I understand that. Yeah. Okay, you know, appreciate that. And there are from VTechs being taught in mainstream through, so I'd ask you to work with the Department of Economy. No, I, I, I understand that. I just think the regulatory quality that doesn't lie with the department. That's right. what I'm just uh, uh, point to note rather than a question, especially in these schools, there is a growing concern from those working there um, with regard to the level of mitigations. And I think you're right, it is time for all of us to stand up and try and give you solutions. Um, I will put my shoulder to the way. Uh, on that one. And I do, I'm just going to say this, don't often get this, but you did respond. I did ask you a question this week about sub teacher payments. You did respond to that and it was covered today. So, in that, in that respect, now this, I'm going to go on to the chair if that's okay. And I'll spend the rest of my time there. Go ahead. So, be aware that I, I wrote to you last week and I wrote to every member of this committee with a solution. What I, what I will say, and I, and I won't waste any time, I'm not going to blame anybody for the situation we are in. Uh, other than to say, I think that our P7 pupils have been uh, treated despicably and, and, and a lot uh, less considerate, um, a lot less consideration has been given to them um, than has been given to our VGSD and A level pupils because we have come up with solutions and people have uh, offered solutions and people have done different things. I will say that whilst I don't think my solution is absolutely perfect, I do believe it to be absolutely fair and absolutely compassionate response. You talked about um, health response. You do. You will agree with me. I'm sure that there is uh, there is no inequity between physical health and mental health. And one of the things that everyone that is listening today will be aware of is the testimony of the B7 pupils who have been very brave to go on the radio, to go on the TV, and to uh, vocalise what is happening to them, the stresses that they're under, and and how alone they feel. Um, and that, I'm not blaming anybody for that because there's multiple stakeholders talk into that. Um, I, what I can say, um, I have had one response from one of the parties that sit at this table and it's a positive response. I, I'll be free to share that at some stage. I want the other parties to respond likewise. Um, it's there. I can say that I've had a very favourable response uh, from those schools that have contacted in the grammar sector. I have primary schools contacting me. I have a letter with the unions. What this is going to take uh, is uh, a, a cross-stakeholder effort. Now, I know it's not easy. And what, I was, what I've discovered, Minister, is that what's probably holding everybody back is fear, fear of litigation. But as you've said, the, the fear of litigation actually exists whether this test runs, whether it doesn't, because it's substantively changed from what it was promised. If it runs in the essence of one exam, it is not free. TL is not running, so the threat there exists. What I do believe, and I do believe in common decency, I believe that if parents and people believe that we have done our very best, you will mitigate the threat of litigation and you will have less litigation than you've ever had uh, on this process. And I would call on those that are using that terminology at the minute to desist from it because I do believe if you can give some resources towards it and, and they are prepared to, to step up here, we have, the, we have the genesis of a solution for these P7 pupils. And what we all need to remember is this isn't about a test. It's not about academic selection. It is about these P7 pupils and doing our very best. So thank you, Chair, for allowing me. It wasn't a question there, Minister, but I... I, 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 mean, look, I, I suspect probably, to be fair, I have to... Look, first of all, I commend you for your, your efforts in, in relation to it, Robbie. It's not... Look, what I would say, a couple of points. First of all, in terms of the issue of litigation, and there are particular issues that will be 
at different levels in terms of what solutions are, are put in place with regard to litigation. The, the problem sometimes with litigation is it is not, even if we reach a point where 99 out of 100 think something such as grant, they don't intend to litigate. You know, litigation tends to be relatively small numbers of people. There are specific problems, I have, I have to say, and that is why we've also said that in terms of the options that are open to schools, and written to them this, this week, there are three sweeps of, of options. One is to do the test. Secondly, to use non-selective criteria or non-academic selective criteria, or the third is to use some form of alternative form of selective criteria. What we have said in terms of, we have said to schools that, that whatever direction they take, they need to take a level of legal advice because there's a level of vulnerability. Specifically though, there are very major problems, I'm being honest with you, in terms of the models that have been put forward for academic selection um, uh, without the test. And that's not to say that there aren't problems with the test. So uh, I don't know whether it may be, may be useful for me to outline those, Chair, or whether yeah, I think it would be useful. Yeah, I, th I think it would be useful to hear what degree of scoping you have done of, of, the, of that alternative criteria as concisely as possible. Thanks, Minister. Okay, we've looked at suppose, three potential uh, models, to be fair, one of which wasn't suggested by, by um, Robin. We can think of three ways that the potential can happen. <coughs> one is essentially simply by way of uh, cooperation with primary schools for them to supply general information for them to do some form of ranking and some level of assessment. It is very clear that primary schools are not up for that, that you would get some level, you may get some schools willing to do that, but others not, and there's no equitable way to do that. Probably the two main options that have been put forward with Robbie has been is the standardised tests, which are largely based around the pies and pins, or the, um, the issue of um, the, the, the issue of, of call it the mock tests, I think, has been put. Uh, on the first, the problem in terms of the pies and pins and commercial standardised, uh, from previous surveys we've done, about 90% of primary schools will do some form of commercialised test, be it a pie and pin or a cat, means about 10% don't, which means that of those applicants, you would have a number of applicants that would not have any data at all. In terms of the, in terms of the pies and pins, first of all, again, you're also then, those that are doing tests, are doing different tests. So there's an issue around uh, the fact that while they are standardised, because there's not a, they're done in very different natures, there is a, a difficulty in terms of comparisons. But particularly probably the biggest drawback within that in terms of comparisons is partly because of schools take a different approach to frequency of those tests, and also because of the disruption of the, um, of the, the virus and when schools have been in a position to do it. Schools are at very different places as to what levels of testing they've done. So for some pupils, sorry, for some schools, the last standardised test was essentially in the current cohort was in P5. Some may well have done it in P5 and P6, some will have done it in P7. So trying to make those levels of comparisons, it is very difficult to see a situation uh, in terms of commercial assessments, which are they're not necessarily standardised in, in Northern Ireland. They're not effectively on the level playing field. And making those levels of comparisons um, will at best create a level of, of vulnerability. Now, we're not saying that those have to be in, are entirely off the table and ruled out, but there are very major problems uh, with those, and those will be acknowledged by many within the sector. The, uh, there is probably, I think, less, um, less sort of reassurance, I think, that certainly from the feedback that we have got, on the practice tests. Again, in part, not every school uh, does those. So again, you would be having data which would be available for some students, but not for others. And we're talking about a competitive process. 
They're not done in the same way. They're not marked the same way. There's also the fact that in terms of practice tests, the tests themselves are not necessarily the same standard or, or difficulty. So if you're comparing what the best test the result would be or the, the two best tests, you're not comparing necessarily like with like. And it is also the case, particularly as regards to the APQE practice papers, they are all commercially available. And there will be a number of occasions where people have bought practice tests, have done the practice tests before they've done them, for instance, within schools yep. themselves. Okay. So, doing, like, so you know, what I'm saying is that there is, with all those, well, it's not entirely ruling out those, as that, and there's the option for schools to do it. It, it does leave them in a very difficult position making comparability between, uh, between pupils on a fair basis. And I think that is the area, particularly where there would be additional levels of vulnerability from a legal challenge point of view. Okay. That's why our advice, okay. we're not ruling it out for anybody, but as regards any of the routes, schools have got to take a level of advice before what, what route okay. they go down as to where that, that leaves them in terms of their levels of robustness. Okay. I, say, I generally say this with respect, Minister, that I, I appreciate you setting out your position in relation to some of those issues. I think some of that was fairly well known, and I, I think we, uh, we are hoping and the public are hoping that the Department of Education has has scoped other alternative criteria. Well, if you, if you, well, the other criteria, clearly in terms of schools, are written to with the normal list of criteria, some of which are recommended, some of which are not. We've also made it clear that, that if somebody in a school is going down a non-recommended criteria, then they, they don't have that level of indemnification. But okay. you know, there is nothing, I think it would be fair comment to say, and I appreciate particularly Robbie's efforts in relation to this. I, I don't think there is a new solution which anybody has suggested. And I think it is undoubtedly the case that um, you know, there are some advantages to, to certain solutions, but there's also disadvantages probably to every, every solution. That, that also, I suppose, includes there are disadvantages in terms of where we are with, with AQE as well. So I'm not, I'm not denying that. The point uh, I'm saying is that there isn't some magic bullet solution out there which is... Yeah getting over which will then be universally regarded as being fair, that will be regarded as being robust. I think okay. that's where the difficulty uh, lies within that. Can as I, I said, okay. part of, as part of the letter that's going out to schools, it does list uh, non-selective criteria, again, which is recommended, and others which, which are not. Yeah, okay. Look, I, we don't have time to discuss this properly today, quite clearly. Um, no, I understand that. Yeah. I, I, I mean, the, the New Decade, New Approach um, paper, came out of a number of, of working groups. There was a programme for government education working group. Um, Minister, would, would you consider maybe convening uh, a meeting of that nature with relevant party spokespeople as one possible way to allocate adequate time to have this type of discussion? Because we simply, that, don't, we simply don't yeah, have it today. I'll leave, leave that with um, you, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Chris, look, from, that, from that point of view, look, I'm, I'm happy because I think probably in terms of the, the confines of that, if, if we want to have a representative from each of the parties um, discuss over the issue and discuss over it like that, I'm more than happy to do that. I, th I think there's a possible format there, which, which our format today simply doesn't have adequate time for, and I, I appreciate there be, there'll be, there'll be member and public frustration with that. What I would also suggest is that if that is a meeting held and the only people at that are those, those representatives of it, something where people can then air their views you know, other ways. We could be well. creative. It, we, we, it should have happened before now, but maybe it's not too late. Um, I'll bring uh, William Humphrey, MLA, in. Um, thanks, Chair. Um, morning, Minister, and thanks for your time and your, your officials this morning. Um, 
I, I should do, declare an interest as a governor in two schools, Edinburgh Primary and Girls Model. Um, can I just start by thanking those that are involved in education, principals, teachers, governors, and indeed all of those who work across the education state um, at this difficult time and for their work over the last 10 months or so. Um, Minister, you will know I have written to you um, quite considerably over the last week around the issue of special education and the mm -hmm. concerns that special education staff have in particular, and I know you have dealt with that in answers to others uh, this morning. But I, I wanted to raise the issue about the Joint Committee on Vaccination uh, with you. I, I know you have written to the Executive about um, uh, those, those working in special education being um, uh, given priority uh, on the list in terms of the, the vaccination. But in terms of the, the actual uh, Joint Committee membership, it's largely made up of scientists, I understand. Um, what input does the regional government in Northern Ireland, or the regional governments across the United Kingdom, have into that? Well, look, I, I, what I understand is it would probably be an, an interface between, I think, particularly the health ministers of the four just in the three devolved institutions and uh, Matt Hancock in that, in that regard. Uh, there was a, a position taken relatively early uh, within that, effectively, that, that the health ministers, for want of a better word, devolved responsibilities to the to that joint committee. I suppose with the argument that, that these things shouldn't be political decisions on the basis of a, um, a wider uh, sort of you know, clinical um, scenario. Uh, what I would say is I suspect that if there was a united voice coming out of those four ministers saying this is something that needs to be, I can only think that the, the, uh, the vaccination um, committee would, would take note of that. And I think with the window of opportunity, look, it is clear, while all of us are very strongly in favour of um, teachers, and particularly those in special schools, getting vaccinated, I don't think even anybody within the sector would say they, would take, they should take priority over like an 85-year-old or whatever. But where I think the window of opportunity is that whenever the, the, the principal most at risk groups are out of the way, I think there is a much more, um, I wouldn't say necessarily a blank page, but effectively, I don't think there's been a determination over precisely how things will be implemented from that, that point on. We're due, I think, I'm not breaching anything, any particular executive confidentiality. I think that there will be further information in terms of briefing that will be given tomorrow with the executive of the health minister and the vaccination uh, programme. So there may be opportunities to okay. be able can, to can I, raise that again at that stage. Can I suggest that in your ongoing conversations with the, the health minister uh, and the chief medical officer, that that recommendation... Uh, he should consider making approaches to the uh, health secretary at a national level with the other health ministers from the, the, the other uh, devolved uh, administrations across the UK uh, and put that forward. I think that would be very helpful. I also think in terms of uh, going forward, I welcome your commitment to work with uh, those across education uh, in terms of uh, your officials as well, in terms of principals and trade unions and in terms of the, the um, communication around those things is hugely important. Uh, also school governors who have to make very difficult decisions as well. Communication and early decisions uh, are crucial. C can I then move on, if I may, in relation to um, the AQE? Um, the, the issue is, I was, you know, I've been speaking to school principals in the last week, I'm sure other members have as well, both primary and grammar. Uh, uh, but I got a text yesterday 
from a school, uh, primary school principal in my constituency basically say, um, William, I want to give you a heads up. He names the, the uh, school. I don't want to name the school here. Of release criteria that will, will, will exclude most children in our area. The criteria is against that advised by the EA and the Department of Education. Now, you know, that, that is, I know you share that concern probably stronger than, than I do uh, around that issue. Um, that, that is a concern. I, I, I mean, I'm genuinely concerned, and I welcome the comments you made today about working with others to try and get a solution. I'm genuinely concerned that young people from the constituency, one of the most deprived constituencies in the UK that I represent, will not have the opportunity uh, as they have in any other year. And I know we're in extremely difficult circumstances to get the opportunity for grammar school education. So all that can be done, and I know you're working hard with colleagues around it, all that can be done to ensure that those, those children get that opportunity, as, as you set out from a personal perspective last week uh, in, the, in the chamber. So that's not a question, it's just a statement. But I want, I want to finish by raising the issue of the other pandemic, and I mentioned this in the, the discussion we had in the chamber uh, recently. Uh, we're all very concerned about the issue of general um, mindfulness and, and well-being of our young people and their parents. I, I welcome the decision to, to keep uh, uh, special schools open because I'd written to you about, in particular about a young couple in my constituency who have three children with autism uh, and the concern that they had. And, and, and there will be many families that got across Northern Ireland. But going forward, uh, we had a huge issue uh, before COVID of uh, mental health issues, and they, they will be, and it's, like it's accepted across the board, they will now be uh, uh, exacerbated, and that problem will grow. Can you assure us, in terms of the work that you're doing with the Department of Health, Public Health Agency, uh, Department of Communities, local government, and, and so on, that all is being done to, to try and um, minimise the effect that that's going to have on our young people, because I am concerned at the far end of this, whether it is uh, A-levels, AS-levels, or uh, the transfer test, that, that they, these are going to be issues that won't just affect young people, but their parents as well, who are under tremendous pressure. Uh, well, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to give that assurance. I, I mean, look, I think one of the worries that is, is out there and very well-founded is that, that both the pandemic and some of the steps that both in education and beyond that have had to be taken to counter it would have a very damaging effect on people's mental health, particularly children's mental health. And that, I think, in terms of, to be fair, when, when weighing up all these things, you can go through, for instance, um, some of the CH papers which highlight, if you like, some of the concerns over transmission. Those same papers will also then highlight that if there is disruption to education, there's a price to be paid in terms of mental health. And I think the other thing, which is perhaps maybe less obvious in, in certain regards as well, um, is that, that probably the pandemic also creates um, a, a, a level of barrier to what levels of interventions can take place as well. And what I mean by that um, is um, for a lot of that one-to-one -one work where there's somebody on a counselling basis where Yes, you can Zoom. Yes, you can do things of that, that nature. It is not the same as physically um, someone being directly in the same room in very close contact with whoever is counselling or helping them. I think that, that is certainly a, a level of additional barrier in the, in the short term. But certainly I think there's... Uh, so I, I think all this is, is frankly very worrying, I think, for all of us. 
Okay, that's time, William. Thanks very much indeed. Uh, Nicola, Rogan, MLA. Thank you, Chair and Minister. Thank you for coming in front of the committee this morning. Um, have you, as you have previously mentioned this morning, we know that there are higher numbers of vulnerable children and children of key workers attending schools um, this time round. What extra support and resources have been given to deliver um, in school and remote learning? Um, and the better quality of that there, and uh, you know, support to help manage staff absence as well. Well, I mean, I, I suppose from the point of view of, of staff absences, we've worked um, consistently as part of the COVID bit to have uh, clear levels of substitute cover. I think it's part of the the overall proposals because it has been made clear by the finance minister across the board that there is a, a pot of money now directly. Um, that, that can be drawn down on uh, from a COVID, but where he will do a call it like a COVID monitoring round, if I can put it that way, and is hoping to do that very shortly. Uh, as part of that, we are finalising bids, which would then put additional resources in to provide um, be a sort of additional staff staffing cover uh, as a result of that. Uh, look, I think uh, from that point of view. It is also the case that in terms of the provision directly within school, that should match what is there for the children outside school as well. I think the principal difference we are likely in, I think yesterday, although I've yet to see the, the direct results, the first surveys we've done uh, of schools in terms of attendance, that will be done on a regular regular basis. You know, It is clear anecdotally that there will be considerably more vulnerable and key worker children directly within school buildings that, than were there in the first lockdown. I think the first lockdown, there was such a, a climate of fear that that was that was extremely minimal. I think this time round it will be considerably higher, and I think that's 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 a good thing. But uh, you know, we'll be making bids to the finance minister in terms of additional resources. I, and I think I think there's an openness there from the finance minister and others to to meet. You know, I can't give a guarantee, but I, th I think there's a willingness to to meet the changed circumstances. And I think all these things adapt to the circumstances that are, are prevalent. Thank you, Minister. And just you mentioned there as well about support for um, children who aren't at school who um, receive an education by remote learning. Um, I've been contacted by a number of people concerned about the quality of the remote learning. You mentioned in the brief this morning about the role of the education training inspector. Can you provide detail to us in what direction um, that your department has given on this and how you're ensuring the quality of education for every child? ETI, generally speaking, either and also EA provide in each case link officers with each uh, with each school. Their role in part is to try to uh, monitor and see how things are going directly as regards uh, remote learning. I think where there are specific complaints then that are, are being brought forward, if those can be brought forward to the department, we can then actually um, ensure that those are, are dealt with directly on on the ground. You know, to some extent, it goes is to try to make sure that the, the level of remote learning. Is a highest quality. There has been um, both continuity directives, which means it has now become a requirement. Uh, and additionally, I think there's been a considerable amount of work has been done on remote learning. It is though very difficult to get a situation where what you're going to get is entirely uniform uh, across the piece. If we're talking about dealing with uh, more than 300,000 uh, children, and sometimes that may even vary within a school. You know, the the, the exact quality of remote learning may differ. Um, even sort of within a school. I suppose the other factor as well is we may have a situation that in terms of different families, um, their expectations of remote learning may differ. But the, I think the other drawback of remote learning is no matter how brilliantly is, it is um, in some cases delivered, it's still not the same as direct face-to-face -face teaching because it's not just the material or the actions that are taken in that bit, but 
children, I think, largely speaking, develop more, respond more when they're in a classroom setting than when they are, they are at home. And that is probably the barrier which, which is impossible entirely to overcome. It's about trying to minimize that gap rather than necessarily saying that, that, that anything that can be done will be of the same standard or the same um, effect as direct face-to-face -face teaching. Um, yeah, I agree with you there that it, it can be difficult to ensure that equality, but I think that's our role to bring that to your attention and your role to ensure that we deliver it as much as we can. Well, you know? And certainly everything will be done, Nicola, to try to, try to make sure that, that that is the case. I'm just, you know, I, I'm not going to pretend on that basis that, that we're going to reach a situation where everything is going to be perfect on that, on, that, on that front, but I think we need to take every effort to try to do the best that, that can be there in relation to that. Absolutely. Thank you, Minister, and thank you, Chair. Thanks, Nicola. Justin McNulty, MLA. Thank you, Chair. Uh, Minister, how many children are in school today? How many children are in school today? Yeah. I don't, I don't have those figures. We put out a survey yesterday, it's which we're trying to collect that, that information. And we've been it's clear that, the, uh, as I said, from the responses we tended to get, that there'll be considerably more than were there during, during the first lockdown. Once we get collated, like, we'll be happy once the survey information is collated. Uh, that we'll, we can certainly provide that to the committee. How many children are in special schools today, Minister? Well, again, as part of that, we're, we, once the information is created, we'll, we'll get that to you. Minister, are you telling me, as a constituency MLA, I have more data on how many children in schools, mainstream schools, how many children in special schools than you as Minister of Education? I could never aspire to your level of wisdom, Mr McNulty. No, listen, don't make a mockery of this, Minister. This is not no, a joking no, matter. No, not no, a joking no, matter at all, Minister. Here's the thing, Justin. Justin we have put out <laughs> surveys. Getting uh, that information, there is no point in producing something which is inaccurate in relation to that. We will get the data directly to the committee as soon as we have the data. Minister, are you aware of what's going on in special schools across the north today? Are you aware of the pressure teachers are under? Are you aware of the efforts that parents are going through to make sure their children are safe and are provided for? Are you aware of what's going on on the ground in schools today? Well, directly speaking, as I said, we are liaising closely with those, those special schools. It is a difficult time for everyone, but there is a clear need for those schools uh, to be open, particularly for many parents who need, who need that, that help in terms of their, their child being at, at school on that basis. Now, as I've indicated, if there's any issues where there are either resources or specific suggestions, we will certainly take those aboard and implement, but there's not a, a perfect solution, a golden solution, which can then transform uh, the position into some uh, additional layer of safety, really, that, that is beyond what is there at present. But if there are any specific suggestions, we'll be happy to take those on board. Minister, I'm really angry. I don't think there's been any recognition from your department that special schools are different. Teachers in special schools are different. They've been treated at mainstream schools, and, and whilst the, the, the effort in mainstream schools is extraordinary, special schools are different. And the level of PPE provided and the, the mitigation put in place for those teachers has not been enough. Those teachers sorry, are here. Justin, in terms of PPE, we've entirely followed the level of guidance that is there from public health. And where they have said, suggested what needs to happen in educational settings, that has been fully followed. It is also the case that if we're talking about, uh, if we're talking about face coverings, for example, uh, it has been made clear from day one and can be reiterated again today as well, uh, that from that point of view, those are entirely permissible for any staff member or indeed any child uh, to be wearing. It has not been recommended at any stage outside of uh, where there is some form of, of specialist health action needs to be taken with a child. 
Public Health have never recommended wearing food PPE for teachers in any settings, whether that is special schools or whatever, on that, on that basis. Well, well, I, just have, always, sorry, I can sorry, stop you there. Special school teachers do not feel safe. In terms of the provision of PPE, they do not feel safe. Just to clarify, because sometimes people, whenever they talk about PPE, they, there's not necessarily a common understanding. By PPE, are you talking about face coverings? Are you talking about food gowns, as you would find, broadly speaking, within a hospital setting? Social distancing is not practical or practicable in special school settings, where it's about physical education as well as uh, academic education. You know that there's a, there's a huge physical element to the education in special schools. Now, you know, two schools. And I, yeah, and I understand that, Justin, but this also comes down to then, if we are saying, first of all, that we need entirely to follow what public health guidance is as regards these issues, but also from that perspective then to find solutions of things. Now, if schools are to be open for everyone, then the level of social distancing um, will not be able to be done that, that will require sort of a two-metre distancing, uh, distancing rule on that, on that basis. I think that some of that will be eased by the fact that, that there will be, uh, across the board, there will be a range of parents who, for very um, good reasons on their part, will, will say, actually, we're not comfortable with our child being in school at the moment. That is perfectly fair in the current, in the current circumstances. But you know, any action that can be taken is being taken that, that will be of, of, practical, uh, of a practical nature and, and connection. And we will work. As indicated, I think in terms of the meeting with, uh, with special schools, public health were directly in at that. They would continue to be in at that. And where there is any recommendation or any suggestion of public health, which would be of benefit to be at either special school or indeed a mainstream school, we will entirely follow that. Okay, well, I know one special school who have 90 pupils out of 140 in class, where they've got 38 staff out of a cohort of 100 staff missing. How on earth would you expect that school to operate when they can't have access, they cannot get access to substitute teachers? They're scared, they're, they're really, really worried, they're, they're, they're frightened. Another school, 40% of the staff absence, the staff are, are dropping like flies, the, the, the headmistress has, come, has spoken to me about, and they can't get access to sub-teachers. Well, really, really yeah, but the issue, in terms, as indicated in terms of substitute teachers, where substitute teachers can be provided, they'll be provided. There is a, there is a, a restriction in terms of the fact um, that in terms of the number of people that are available and these are physical bodies who, who are qualified, trained, um, have chosen to go down that route, particularly of special, is, uh, is smaller than it will be within mainstream settings because there's more flexibility and adaptability with the mainstream setting because you can have a, a scenario where, uh, you know, somebody can go into a different, a different scenario, whereas it has to be somebody who's a level of, of specialist quality with, within that. Um, can I... Maybe just bring in, in relation to that, because again, some of the detail of that, I'll bring in Ricky just in, in connection uh, with, with that in terms of the safety issues. Um, no, thanks very much, Minister. In terms of the issues, just on that you're raising, they, they have been very, very clearly articulated to us, both the union and the school principal themselves. Uh, and I can say that we do have a PHA rep. On those meetings and we'll continue to have a wrap going forward we have said to school leaders that they do have operational discretion in terms of making um, some difficult decisions around maintaining um, safety within their schools we understand that there is an issue around access to staffing 
Um, and what we have said very clearly to them is that where they're faced with making some difficult decisions about the level of provision, they should in the first instance engage very closely with their EDA and support officers who will assist them as best they can in terms of making those difficult decisions. And we're also asking that they work closely with the parents who are affected by those decisions. And of course, where necessary with the health and social care representatives uh, who are supporting some of those pupils. So we are very aware of the issues that are being raised and we're trying to support the schools as best we can. Well, well, Justin, just very briefly. Justin, to both you, Ricky, and to, to uh, the Minister. Special schools do not feel that you're aware of what's going on in their, in their buildings, in their schools. Parents and schools and teachers are putting together, are playing together to do their best for the kids and they're working it out as best they can, but if they're on their knees and they do not feel that they've got the support from the Minister or from the Department and they're really scared, they're really frightened. I think, John, Justin, 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 really briefly, just, sorry, just let me come in there. Don't you make sure there Minister? A lot of people who've contacted me saying, actually, can you hear me? Okay. That, that a position has been taken in terms of special schools of keeping them keeping them open as, as well, and we need to ensure that, that that is the case. So there's not. Don't always assume there's a uniform view out there on any particular well, issue. I, I fully I fully agree that special schools should be open. I'm just saying they do not feel that they've had support or the provision of information. Okay. Or, again, again, if there are specific suggestions rather than more generic uh, issues, we will be happy to take those on board from anyone. Whether well, it's just you know, we're, we're going past the time for specific suggestions, you should know this. Yeah, sorry, what yeah, we're at. It is, it is the case, Justin, with any... Well, sorry, we're well past the time. For, so if somebody comes forward with a suggestion saying, here's something how you can improve things... No, I can't believe that. This, I can't believe at this point unless you're asking me for suggestions about what should we do. No, no, no. no, no sorry, sorry. The, point, the point I'm making, Justin, is it is very easy in a generic sense somebody to criticise and say... Uh, not, not, but if you're not actually putting forward specific suggestions at how... I mean, like, uh, you know, I'll not be entirely at one to take an example, uh, you know, with well, the access to staff and PPE are two separate things. Access to staff and PPE are two separate things. Access to staff and PPE for And from that point of view, in terms of staff, we've already explained that there will be a limitation on what can be provided there. It's happy, we're happy to provide what can. There are, physically speaking, a limitation on the people who are physically can be there. And you can't just pull somebody off the street and put them into a special school. You can't just pull in other teachers no no experience and put them into a special school. And in terms of PPE, if we are talking about Full gear, as would be worn by, uh, for example, within a hospital setting or a care worker setting or whatever, we will follow entirely what is advised from the public health side. But those are the people that make the judgment call within that. And if there is provision to be needed to be made in that, that will be made. But you know, if they're saying we do not recommend something, then frankly, we have to go with their with their professional judgment in relation to that. Okay, Mister. One final point, and indulging, please, Chair. Um, Justin, let, I'll, I'll let you ask this question, but I just want to supplement one that you asked to Ricky. That's all I was trying to do. Um, it, Ricky said, uh, Ricky referred to difficult decisions. Ricky, what, what did you mean when you referred to difficult decisions? I think, Chair, that relates to where uh, a school um, doesn't have full access to the staff that it needs, um, and they are considering what options. Um, they have in terms of the level of provision that they can provide during the course of the week. So we know that some schools have looked at um, some cohorts being in certain days um, or maybe in the mornings, those sort of decisions. So what we're saying to those school leaders is that we're asking them to work very closely with the EA to support them in making those decisions and um, to minimise the impact uh, on children and to work with the EM and the health and social care staff as well. 
that's that's there the sort of difficult decisions I'm referring to. So you you think there are some situations where the circumstances faced by a special school might um, might require them to adjust their their hours? Well, we know that some schools are looking at those options, but the position changes on a daily basis. It depends on the level of staffing that they have access to. So um, I have seen uh, some uh, considerations that some schools are making around that. Yeah. Okay, I, th- I, we're, I think we're really tight on time. I want to let Justin back in and Morris as the final question, but I think it's quite significant that the Department of Education is is acknowledging the fact that the situation by special schools is so challenging that full, open, normal operations may have to be considered. Uh, that, that's what I'm taking from that, although I don't think the Minister has said no, something I, I, like that today. I think look, I, I would certainly acknowledge things are very challenging. It would mean that, that there may be individual cases where there, there may have to be, you know, just what is practically deliverable maybe may ultimately have some level of limit within that. The aim is to have schools, special schools, as open as possible all the time on it. But I think there is a recognition that there, there may be some points where there is simply practical constraints, which means that that cannot be 100% delivered. Okay. And we're saying there needs to be that, that engagement and, and working with to try at least, okay. if there's going to be any level of disruption, that's kept to a minimum. Okay. Minister, I have a final concise question from Justin and then Morris and, and doing my best to keep to your time for you here. Okay. Justin? It's extraordinary the lengths that the special school teachers and staff and parents are going to ensure that their kids are looked after. It's extraordinary and unbelievable. Well done to them all. But last question, last point, Minister, and a question as well. Um, in terms of mainstream schools, I've got a message from our principal there yesterday who said it was, a, it was a privilege to be in a position to help families who genuinely need our help by providing supervision of key workers, children, and for those pupils who are vulnerable. It's inspiration to work with colleagues who have excelled in providing online remote teaching guidance and comfort to the spectacular number of families who have engaged with us. It's been extremely informative to see the performance engaged with us. The performance, sorry, on the data accumulated by prior to Christmas, which has revealed a high level of achievement in university literacy, coupled with the recording of much higher levels of emotional strife amongst our same pupils. Now, I, I'm, I'm a bit torn here, because I can say, yes, well done, teachers, you, you, you're wonderful. But for me, it's patronising. It's patronising for us all to sit around here at the table and say, well done, teachers, and thank you, you're wonderful. When, we, when teachers are scared, teachers are frightened, teachers feel like they're treated like second-class citizens, and they feel that their profession is not being treated like a profession anymore, they're sick of hearing that what's happened to them on the BBC. They're sick of hearing what's happened to them on Twitter. They're sick of the last-minute approach to, to their everyday lives. Why is this? How long is it going to continue for a minister? How, how much longer do teachers have to fit, dine out their information via the media and social media? That is an entirely valid criticism, I think, on behalf of, uh, of teachers that are out there. But let me give you one example in relation to this. Um, last week, the, I brought forward um, uh, a committee statement which involved that with examination. I cannot make that public until it is until it is brought to the assembly itself. Yet within minutes of it being sent to the assembly and around, you know, whatever elected representatives and others that, that were there, it was on the media. Now, similarly, there's a frustration that is out there whenever I sit in an executive meeting, and we often see in terms of leaks, the media having almost sort of verbatim coverage of what's happening in an executive meeting which are supposed to be confidential. So, you know, there are a range of things which 
the protocols are such that things have to be either announced directly to the assembly or to the executive or whatever, but whenever things are simply made public, so I, I, I entirely understand you know, that. You're saying the executive's not a tight ship? Is that what you're saying, Minister? Well, from the point of view of there have been a number of occasions where uh, you can follow, and if, if you go on to if you go on to Twitter, you will see at any executive meeting it is fairly frequent for various things that are being said directly at that time in the executive for somebody, and I think shame on whoever is doing that, directly leaking that to the press while respecting the confidentiality. Okay, okay. And I can therefore entirely. How do you understand the position of teachers and staff in relation to that? Okay, I think we're straying slightly and we're out of time there, Justin. Thank you. Um, Morris Bradley, MLA. Yeah, yeah. thanks, Chair. Uh, thanks very much for the Minister and his team to, uh, who have given us their time freely this morning. Uh, it's been a very, very uh, interesting debate so far, but if I'd like to take it back a wee bit, Minister, uh, to your opening remarks. Uh, uh, about face coverings in the classroom. Yeah, I have a fair number of parents contact me who feel this will be damaging to people's health. Uh, wearing the same uh, mask for long periods will trap moisture and uh, in the coverings and provide the possibility of further complications, especially in children who have already may have respiratory uh, conditions. Can you can this directive be relaxed, or, or can your department work with the health department to lessen the impact on face coverings in the classroom? Mm -hmm. Directly speaking, anything that we have suggested at any stage has been with the support and imprimatur of, of public health and with the uh, uh, with those that are there. Look, I think from the point of view, and it's the same, I suppose, in terms of other regulations in terms of face coverings, where there is a, a level of medical exemption, and we appreciate not in every medical case, uh, you know, will it be the, the case that that you know that for some there would be a reason why it would be impossible for somebody to wear a face covering for a, for a very lengthy period of time. That is the same, I suppose, for anybody, for instance, in their, their form of work or whatever. Clearly, where there are medical exemptions, then there will be exemptions um, either fully or partially from, from wearing that face covering. But I think at times um, there may well be sometimes public concerns over face coverings, which are not necessarily borne out by the medical facts um, in, in connection with this, but where there's a legitimate reason why somebody cannot wear that, and that can be both physical, sometimes it can be a psychological issue, uh, you know, clearly there will be a level of, of exemptions that, that are there. We'll always work with health uh, in relation to that, but there is a broad, there is a broad consensus, I suppose, that, that across society that more face coverings can be worn. It plays one role in terms of, um, uh, in terms of, of combating the spread of COVID. I suppose the point that would be made also by medical side of things is it, it can't simply be a crutch that if, if, whether it's in a school setting or somewhere else, if somewhere is wearing a face covering, that doesn't create a level of immunity. So the, all the other measures that, that were possible, particularly around things like hygiene, can't be ignored at the same time. Uh, thanks for that, Minister. I do, uh, I think it's a wee bit much like children to wear face masks all the time. Ever. I'm sure you will work with the health uh, department trying to remedy that there. The other point, Minister, is pupils uh, who are hoping to complete uh, complete resets this year, uh, especially ones needing grades for university placings, those resets are now not going ahead. So a lot of hard work and preparation has taken place for these important exams. Children have doubled up on the efforts to get the grades needed to secure a place at university, probably in the course of their choice. But 
What method of bargaining will be in place for pupils who were hoping to complete B-steps? Well, Morris, I think it's a CSEs. That, that would be part. Those would be part of the overall factor when it would come to the announcements overall on the the examination uh, replacements. But look, you know, undoubtedly, um, look. That's why, for instance, I've, I've consistently said that the ideal situation examinations take place, and it is also the case that um, even from the point of view of where decisions can can be taken, yes, there will be a lot of students will say, actually, we're very relieved that that examinations are not taking place, that the level of stress is there. But we also have quite a large amount of feedback um, sort of in the run up to things that, that there is a there's a large cohort of, of students who would quite like to have taken that. And I suppose a concern that um, that the preparation work that, that students will have done for examinations, you know, will not directly translate into those examinations. But I think that preparation work will not be wasted and will be able to be factored in uh, when any grading system is is put in place. It's no doubt, and look, it's, it's no doubt, and it's the same to some extent on the face covering side of things. Look, there are a range of things which, if we're in normal circumstances, would not be done or would not be contemplated. Um, but it is, it is all about what is needed in terms of a necessity, in terms of, of combating COVID. And as I said, there are a range of things which are not, broadly speaking, advantageous from a non-COVID point of view, which have, have had to be done and will have to be done as we move ahead um, um, over periods of time. You know, if we can reach a situation where, and all those things, the sooner, I suppose, and I suppose all of us would share this view, whether it's education or otherwise, the sooner that we can move safely to a position of closer to normality, I think, is, is, the, is the best case for everybody. Okay, Minister. Finally, Minister, just one wee, wee quick question. Uh, will the department be looking at uh, maybe setting some sort of mini-examinations as they've been announced across the water recently? Well, look, we'll come forward overall uh, proposals. I think part of the issue in terms of um, one of the issues was I know that Wales had a had a proposals where they had some forms of assessments uh, that were there. That was then very much disrupted by the, the wider um, overall announcement in terms of lockdowns. So, look, I'll be bringing forward uh, proposals in relation to that. But, I, I, you know, I don't want to have a situation where effectively you have exams more or less just under a different name on it. I think we've actually got to be clear and straightforward with people. Okay, thanks, Minister. Thanks very much, Chair. Thanks, Morris. Minister, just in, in closing, um, can, can I just ask a, a process question that I, I didn't quite get yep. the didn't quite get the draw out? Um, the, the section thirty eight of the Coronavirus Act twenty twenty gives you fairly wide and, and sweeping powers to direct all or specified schools to take particular steps, um, as well as power to direct education provision. Is it your understanding that that, that power effectively does give you power? to direct um, the cancellation of the use of tests, uh, transfer tests, and to direct the use of alternative criteria? I just mean from a process point of view. Is that is that well, your understanding of that? A, I think from a process point of view, there could be like further direct legal advice on that, but the, my, my position is that print choice does need to be um, honoured. We've given schools, and just this week, sent out where there, there are a different ranges of criteria and it will be the schools to decide. I, I, I think it would go very much against the spirit of, of wider legislation to say that action would be taken, for instance, that potentially would take academic selection off, off the table. And it is... No, I, pr I, I, I appreciate that position. And, and I mean, that, that, 
the, the direction of alternative criteria that, that you would direct could include an element of academically selective criteria. So what I'm trying to establish is under that coronavirus act, section 38.3, that, that it, gives you, it gives you wide powers to direct all or specified schools to take a particular action. Um, that I, I'm checking is it your understanding that that would extend to directing all or specified schools think, look, to not think, use think, tests look, think, and to use uh, alternative criteria? That that could sorry just to finish just to, just to finish, Minister. Right. That that could include academic based criteria. That that power is available to you. Again, 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 I think that would be also though whether that would be a certain level of abusive process considering that the right of academic selection is something that is is also enshrined in law. And the approach that, that has been consistently taken, and same with, with some other aspects of schools, um, have been, um, where possible, not, uh, not to um, direct something or enforce anything. Look, I, I think, look, I think having a level of parental choice um, is important. I also think that if there is a situation in which, from a public health point of view, something cannot go ahead, that ultimately is the professional judgment of those in public health and will be honoured. Um, I, you know, I'm not going to be stepping in to uh, create a situation outside of that uh, where, you know, there is specific denial of, of parental choice in, in, in relationship. But I understand the, the point you're making in terms of process. Yeah, I think, and I've tried, I've tried to stay in, in a good um, no, level no, of, I, of exchange I, with you today. Entirely, but the, 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 the that, by, yes. by that, by by your, you know, in terms of your desire to to maintain. Your understanding of parental choice—that's gone. That the, the situation we're in at the moment is not the situation as it normally takes place. So your understanding not, of not, what normally not, allocates parental it's choice—it's not, it's not the normal situation. But look, I cannot. I think it is important that the issue of parental choice, as much as possible, is is, is maintained. Now, there may well be something. The, the point the point I'm making is. If something cannot happen because of public health considerations, uh, the only people I think who can declare that to be the case are the Department of Health in, in relation to that. You know, I think there will be a whole range of activities people will be doing um, throughout society, and the key driver is that they are public health compliant on that yeah, basis. I, I so, suppose, to, to, yeah, to briefly to clarify what I mean in terms of, of what would be your understanding of parental choice not, per, not no longer existing this particular year. There are now multiple schools that have decided to not use tests and instead to use their own uh, admissions um, criteria. Do you, would it not be more consistent for uh, an alternative agreed contingency criteria to be used? Well, the point, the point, the point I'm making, um, first of all, is it is first of all entirely the choice of school um, within the. The broad sort of legal permitted limits of what they can do, because clearly, you know, certain things a school could not do in terms of criteria, and I think would never seek to do in terms of criteria. Within that is that level of choice, and that is also a choice as we saw um, towards the end of last year, where a number of schools have decided for a one-year period not to use particular criteria. That legally is entirely um, their opportunity. I'm not trying to prevent any school from doing that, but equally. Um, if it is permitted within public health, if a school wants to use particular criteria, then they are also entitled legally to do that. The point in terms of, as I've indicated, um, there are major problems with 
any form of alternative academic um, selection. That is not to say that that is ruled out, but there is very major problems in terms of robustness and fairness um, of those and comparability, which I think may leave in an incredibly difficult position as regards that. Okay. In closing, closing, <laughs> Minister, you'll accept that there are pupils, parents and teachers across Northern Ireland who are at the end of their resilience in relation to um, those types of issues being scoped and concluded on? Yeah. Well, from that point of view, I don't think there's been a great thing directly has changed. I mean, as part of the scoping exercise, I'm to provide also information to uh, the executive on, on those issues. But look, there is not, with the best one in the world, the constraints that have been there from that point of view are largely the constraints that were there six months ago or, or before, you know, in terms of, for instance, alternatives, where there are advantages and where there are flaws with, within those. Uh, and look, there are levels of frustrations in different directions. There are clearly also levels of frustration amongst many parents who would have wanted tests to go ahead and, and tests to go ahead as they were scheduled in January, for instance, in that regard. So there, you know, there's a very wide range of views out there, but I entirely accept that there's high levels of frustration that is there. I think that is very understandable. And you know, frankly, for any parent looking at, at where they see the potential future for their child, of course, they're going to have both a high level of frustration and anxiety in these very difficult times. Okay, Minister, we, we as you see, just simply don't have the time to cover all the issues in, in the detail that you or, or we no, would I wish. So hopefully we'll I, see you at I the committee again soon. Be something that is more, um, you know, with, with the spokespeople of the, of the main parties on it, I'd be more than happy to okay. um, get something facilitated. Okay. And, I think and, and as I say, discussion... Yep, and as I say, hopefully we'll okay. see you at the committee again soon. There are a wide range of issues there that are... Are going, okay. to, are going to need responses. At times, I'm not available, and officials will be there as well on that, on that oh, side of things. Okay. okay. Thank you, Minister. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, members, if I could ask uh, the clerk to summarise uh, any actions or requests for further information flowing from the session. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so, I have, um, in terms of requests for additional information, um, a report on the departmental position um, in respect of alternative criteria to academic selection by the end of January, as uh, mentioned there by the Minister, that's in progress. Um, then um, the attendance data for the new period of restrictions, so that's referring to the question that um, Justin was putting about how many children are in schools today, how many children are in special schools today. Then um, actions, um, there's one around um, advice from the Minister on how the committee can support him in putting the case to the executive um, for prioritisation of teachers and other school staff in the vaccination programme. So uh, the committee might want to um, just agree that that is in fact um, its position um, and write off then about that. Um, and secondly, um, the, there was a request that the Minister should um, convene as a matter of urgency a meeting of party representatives on education um, under the structures described in the um, in New Decade New Approach Agreement to exhaustively address and discuss solutions and alternatives to the transfer test impasse um, without onerous time constraints, which obviously were curtailing discussion today. Um, does anyone okay. have anything else? Yeah, mem members want to come in on any of those points. Daniel, you have your hand raised there. Chair, can I before Daniel comes up? Chair, I had, uh, I had my hand raised in relation to 
the minister. I was looking to ask him a, a couple of a brief question on the AQE, but it's it's passed. But um, say perhaps, perhaps we can submit it in, in writing as well. We, we simply didn't have the time this morning, Daniel. What, feel free to, to to cite it for inclusion in our our correspondence. Well, the, the question I've drafted here is: I wanted to know was the minister aware that AQE informed the general public through the BBC that children who sat only one AQE test could not be awarded a standard A score. Instead, they would have to apply to grammar schools through special circumstances and supply extra primary school data. Um, and I was wondering: is he going to permit the form of academic selection that requires special circumstances in every instance to go ahead? Okay. If did you yeah. catch that? <laughs> um, yeah, and I'll revisit that in Hansard. Um, okay. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think it's potentially pertinent for us to invite AQE and PPTC to the Education Committee, uh, Daniel, and, and maybe some of those questions could be put direct to them. Would you agree? Yes, Chair. Absolutely agree. Okay. Um, Member, members wish to. Uh, I can. I can add that as an action, yeah. um, and, and ask members for their views on that and, and the other actions that uh, Clark has. Chair, raised. Just, a, just a final point, Chair. Yeah. Um, I think as well. There's a bit of confusion. All of us are inundated with concerns from special school principals and teachers and, and school staff about the current situation. Is there a possibility that we can invite the PHA to attend committee? Don't see why not. Yeah, I think there's important questions that need to be raised here because I don't feel that I got a clear enough answer from the minister as to what advice he's receiving from the PHA in relation to the current review. Okay, just con conscious we have a list of actions here as well. So if, if people can maybe respond to those as well as adding new ones, uh, Robin Newton had uh, indicated, and then I think Karen Mullen is indicating as well. There, Robin. No, Chair, it is really just on this uh, vaccination programme, and I think it would be helpful to the Minister as he goes forward to the Executive and as the uh, Executive make representation around the vaccination of uh, teachers and, and support staff. And I would have thought that was, and I do tend to indicate that there's a, a, maybe a special case for those in the special needs school, but I think it is uh, wider than that, Chair. And whether or not that, that case can effectively be made, but I think it is, seems to me, maybe the general mind of the committee, um, seems to me it's uh, something which the minister would favour, and whether or not the executive will favour it, and whether or not it will bear, bear fruit as the other jurisdictions, as I understand, make similar representation, Chair. Yeah. I think a, a letter from the committee to the minister on that, I think, would be helpful. Yeah, um, Rob, just to comment on that briefly. Um, obviously, the minister alluded to um, giving uh, heed to the JCVI prioritise prioritisation um, in, in addition to uh, seeking to advocate on behalf of uh, teaching staff, special school, or sorry school staff and special school staff. Um, would it be possible for us in that correspondence to ask what, where uh, teaching staff, school staff and special school staff um, are on the GCJCVI prioritisation list and to, um, to include um, our support that, where possible, that 
that they would be sought to be prioritised for vaccination? Is that just with that slight qualification to seek some clarification as to where they, how they are prioritised by JCVI? I understand that JCVI does give a level of prioritisation to, um, to, yeah, to care. Sorry, Daniel. Sorry. I don't believe I don't believe they are prioritising oh, at all on the JCVI list. Yeah, no, not at all. We we've looked at this in okay. detail over the last few days, and they're not. Okay. Um, and that, that's a big concern. Uh, now that can change. Obviously, we're in a fluid situation, but it is it is it is a matter for concern. Okay, Robin. Well, you want to... sure. Robin, sure. just one. Please, sure. sorry, sir. Sure. Apologies. Justin? Sure, it has, to, it has to change because why are we religiously following the JCVI, JCVI recommendations when they're dealing with a different demographic? The demographic of Britain is different to here. We should be making up our own rules in terms of dissemination of the, the vaccination and so we should be pleading, pleading with the, the minister, the health minister, the education minister to seek that clarity and seek that preference for those special school, school teachers and school staff across the board so, so they are prioritised, prioritised as key workers, which they are. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with that, uh, that principle. I think um, the, the guidance is that we may follow the JCVI prioritisation and, and indeed, obviously, the provision of vaccinations is in some way uh, connected to that as well. So I just, I, I'm just, you know, um, so, OK, so Robbie, give me one second. Robin wanted to come back in. William wanted to come in, and, and then I'll bring you in as well. Robin. No, I think, Jerry, you started to outline what the approach in the letter might be. That seems to me to be, certainly, it's encompassing my, my thinking. Um, I think it's a common sense uh, approach. OK. I mean, the point was made by the chief medical officer. When you prioritise one group, if you reprioritise, then you're pushing someone else down the list. Uh, and obviously, they're, they're looking at uh, the, the health of the nation as, as a whole and a way out of, of this uh, uh, pandemic. But no, I, I think the, the, the approach, that we, I think we're all concerned about our teaching staff as a whole. I think we, we ought to be supporting the minister as he raises it in the executive. Okay. Uh, William? Yep. yep. Chair, I think the, the, I mean, I was dealing with this in the office yesterday. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I've been in correspondence with the Belfast Trust around the rollout of the vaccination, and the, the, you know, obviously it started last week, but it's due to be ramped up this week uh, in, the, in the city. But I mean, I, during this meeting, I've received uh, correspondence from a, a gentleman about his mother, who's you know in the cohort that would be um, getting it, and he's been told that the surgery will only be giving these out one day a week. Now, the point I was going to make was. Um, I'm fully in support of Robin's idea about a letter going to the minister, but the evidence the minister gave to this committee, it's the health minister who's in con contact with the health secretary around these issues. So I think, as well as writing to our minister in terms of this committee, the scrutiny that we have and the role that we have with him, I would suggest that we write to the health minister to support our minister's case. That, I mean, the minister's already written to the executive asking for special needs teachers to be given priority. Um, and I think it would be useful if we were to write to the health minister asking him to make that point when he's in meetings with other regional health ministers with the health secretary at the Joint Committee on Vaccination uh, Committee when it next meets. Okay. Uh, Robbie? 
Yeah, thank you, Chair. Um, I'm, I don't know if it's my computer, but I'm listening to some of the things that are being said. There. Um, I, I, listen, I don't think any of us need to disagree on this, but there's a point of clarity that needs to be made here. Um, I think it was Justin's point that this is uh, something to do with TV or something. Um, the Chief Medical Officer and the Chief Scientific Advisor here um, are the people who are, uh, are giving advice on this, um, and the Minister will take his advice from the Chief Medical Officer and the Chief Scientific Advisor. I believe they have a sort of a for features that we do. I think the, the, the latter they ask is absolutely reasonable, but I think where we need to stay collegiately together is that we take our advice from the Chief Medical Officer and the Chief Scientific Advisor and remember and recognise that the position that those three guys are in is unenviable at this time. The other thing to factor into this is the availability of the vaccine. And as it ramps up, it will absolutely be um, uh, ruled out. And I don't disagree, especially with regards to special needs teachers and, and the staff that uh, support these people. But we have to factor in the reality of where we are in terms of availability of vaccine at the moment. And this is not an international thing that the Chief Medical Officer and Chief Scientific Advisor haven't spoken into. They have, and they do, and they will continue to do so. Yeah, I think there are some important important points there, Robbie. Do any other members want to come in on this before I yeah. attempt a summary? I, yeah, Karen. Sorry, of course. Yes, Karen. Apologies, Karen. Mullen. I agree with everything that has been said uh, in relation to trying to get some clarity around this. The answer around the JCVA is one that I got from both ministers before Christmas. We're now into the second week of forward training for specialist schools. Um, and, and we do need that clarity for the staff. To add to the suggestion of Daniel's suggestion of the PHA coming to committee, can I put forward the suggestion of asking the Chief Medical Officer and the, the Chief Scientific Advisor also to come to the committee? Yeah. Uh, yeah, happy to support that. Um, okay, anyone else want to come in on the uh, vaccinations issue? No. Okay. Um, there, there seems to be agreement that we do uh, write to the Education Minister uh, and Health Minister. Um, I'm just, um, I just want to ensure that we get a, a form of words that um, is appropriate. Um, and, and I take Robbie's point, and I think we have to heed Robbie's point, the point that I tried to make as well, that um, there is a degree of scientific and medical advice uh, relating to this as well, I mean, could our correspondents ask the Education and Health Minister what what discretion is available um, to prioritise um, special school staff and school staff and indicate um, our position that within that discretion we would like to we would support. Uh, the early vaccination of uh, special school and school staff. Does that seem reasonable, Robin? That, that's, that's reasonable, Chair. Yep. We, are, we are reacting um, to quote uh, a, from the special school strategic leadership group. Yep. Um, there is a total disregard for the safety of our staff being expected. Now, that, that's an expression I think we are reacting to that situation yeah. uh, and following up on, on their behalf. Obviously, we could certainly ask that question, but I think we should then follow it up with the question, the next sentence, which basically is, if not, then can, 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 the, uh, can that authority be given or that a request to the 
um, the joint group on vaccinations. Okay. Have you enough information to go on there? Yeah, do you, I do. Yeah. I just, I'm, in terms of sequencing, we already have like, quite, a lot, quite a lot of material in the Forward Work Programme. Um, so uh, I would suggest that maybe we get an answer to this before we then invite anyone from the Health Department. Yeah. <coughs> okay. That's all right. Okay. I, I think, uh, yeah, there, look, there's a, a number of uh, suggestions here. Maybe um, we need to bring some of this back to our Forward Work Programme agenda item at the end here. Yeah. But... Um, in, in terms of uh, programming further evidence sessions, because I, I actually think that ETI in relation to blended learning may also be um, a useful addition as well. Um, but in terms of correspondence and actions, um, are members content with what we've agreed further to the session there? Ms. Clark, do you maybe want to have one final recap and we'll get you full agreement? Um, okay, so the... Uh Additional information requested was um, initially about the departmental position, which will be um, formed during the course of January in respect of uh, criteria for academic alternative criteria for academic selection. Then um, also attendance data for the new period of restrictions. Um, then the action um, about prioritisation of teachers and other school staff uh, was initially a letter of support from the committee. Um, and that is now developed into a letter of support from the committee um, for prioritisation of teachers and other school staff, specifically um, special um, needs schools. Um, and we're asking with what the discretion is for prioritisation of categories of staff, such as uh, school staff generally and uh, special needs staff specifically, um, in relation to the JCVI prioritisation system. Um, there was a representation that um, there may be a demographic um, uh, issue here, um, and that, but the committee is in any case um, of, of a mind that special school staff are especially vulnerable. Um, I think that's fair enough. Yep. 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 Is that okay? Yep. Um, and then um, just to recap again, that the minister might convene as a matter of urgency a meeting of party representatives on education um, as per the NDNA agreement to exhaustively address and discuss solutions and alternatives, transfer test impasse without time constraints. Um, and I've got um, uh, yeah, a question for the AQE about um, special circumstances that, uh, that may be experienced by uh, specific um, transfer age pupils um, about their uh, primary school information. So that was Justin's question. I need to, need to listen to the uh, Hansard again for that. Okay. Yeah. Members agreed with those actions? Agreed. Great, Chair. Okay. Thank agreed. you. Okay. Members, um, I'll move to agenda item six, Clark, if that's okay, to take our, our briefing from the okay. Youth Work Alliance Uniform Hub. Network Youth NI and ask Assembly Broadcasting to remove all members from the spotlight and to add the witnesses. Can I refer members to a briefing note from the committee clerk at page 166? Briefing papers from the Youth Work Alliance, Network Youth NI and the Uniform Hub at pages 125 to 145. EA correspondence about its funding scheme for regional and local voluntary youth organisations at page 146. The revised Regional Voluntary Youth Development Plan at 2020 to 23, 
at page 193 and the Priorities for Youth document 2013 at page 229. Can I welcome Stephen Dallas, the Czech Chief Executive Officer of Youth Work Alliance? Sorry. William, sorry, you want to come in briefly? Yeah. Before you start, can I just declare two interests? Yeah. Uh, one is uh, a board member of Street Beat, which is based in North Belfast, and the other is a member of the Scout Association. Thank you, William. No problem. Um, the, can I also welcome then June uh, Trimble, MBE, Chief Executive Officer of Youth Action Northern Ireland, <coughs> Stephen Barr, Service Manager, Start 360, Claire King, Hub Facilitator of the Uniform Hub, Jonathan Gracie, Scouts Northern Ireland Uniform Hub, and Claire Flowers, Girl Guiding Ulster Uniform Hub. Can I advise witnesses that the committee will give them five minutes uh, per organisation to make an opening statement? And this will be followed by questions from members. Who wants to start? I'm happy. I'm yeah, here. go ahead, Stephen. <laughs> go ahead. Sorry, tuning guys. <laughs> I'll just go because I'm sitting here. So, uh, thank you, uh, for the Youth Work Alliance membership. We're delighted for this opportunity to come to the committee. We're actually more delighted that we're getting a chance to ask questions from us about this current state of, of, of where things are at. Um, so, we're really looking forward to it. So, I'm Stephen Dallas, Chief Executive of Youth Work Alliance. Um, for the last seven, I've been involved in this sector for about 20 years. For the last seven, I've been involved in the senior leadership team within the statutory delivery. Uh, for the three, uh, I started this role in October. The three years previous to that, I was the regional head of youth services, working directly to the assistant director in youth services in EA. So, uh, Youth Work Alliance members are voluntary community sector management committees, and the Youth Work Alliance currently has a membership of 63 full-time uh, youth projects or centres, 71 part-time, and seven um, specialist services, if you like. And over the last three years, just to give you a sense of scale, those members' average budget over the last um, three years has been about £4.2 million. That's about ha nearly half of what the Education Authority invests in voluntary sector youth services. And you can see that in Appendix 2 of your briefing paper in terms of an outline. Um, this indicates a significant role of our members in providing local voluntary youth services. Um, I hope you enjoyed the two short videos in your briefing paper. I didn't think you wanted to read a lot of stuff about COVID-19 and our responses. So there's from Monkstown Boxing Club and Glen Parent Association. That's a microcosm of, of really what all our members are doing at the minute and what they've been doing within their local communities to provide powerful youth services. And what I sort of observe is that, and I think all the, all the guys who are going to do their inputs will, will say this, we compared, when you look across the UK and Ireland, what we have in the voluntary sector is outstanding, and it's really important that we nurture it. So D, what we would like to say post-COVID, we would like to see DE take every step possible to make sure that they nurture this valuable asset. And one of the ways we believe we can do this is outlined in page five of our briefing paper. Over the last five years, the EA has done a youth service has done some amazing things, restructuring its management, restructuring outdoor learning. We would say that now is the time to reframe and review how we deliver local youth services, placing voluntary local providers at the heart. Over the last three months, we've really engaged with our local members, really trying to intensely understand what they believe they can do. And we have a, quite a valuable data set now from our members saying they're very clear that they can deliver much more than what they're being asked to at the minute. Um, particularly, that's clear in the North West, but very much so in Belfast, Portadown, Lurgan and Mid-Ulster. But again, it's all over the region. They're ready to do more. And if you include our partners in the YMCA, and our partners in the uniform sector who deliver locally, the potential is phenomenal. 
It's important we consider the, you know, the current EA budget for youth services, and that's outlined in Appendix 2. It's a Youth Work Alliance position that if you invest in voluntary providers for the delivery of local services, it will be of higher quality and it will be more cost effective. You look at Appendix 2, you will see that is very, very clear. And we can validate this from ETI inspections historically in the community and voluntary sector, always excellent. EA moderations also validate that. The quality is there. We've got something that we should build on moving forward. So finally, just to kind of bring this to an end, restructuring youth services and locally is our big ask. This is what we believe we should focus on post-COVID, and 2021 should be about, about this. And that will offer amazing opportunities to regional support specialists to go and support those local providers. I will conclude by just asking the members, you know, that page six of our briefing um, has about key asks. We have four key asks, and we ask you that we can have a good conversation about what we think that might mean. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Stephen. Um, okay, who wants to come in next? I'm happy to come in for Uniform Hub, but I just have to apologise because my camera's for some reason not turning on. That's okay. Feel free to introduce yourself and then proceed. Thank you. I'm Claire King, Uniform Youth Work Hub. Um, the Uniform Youth Work Hub is a strategic partnership of the six main uniformed organisations in Northern Ireland. So that's um, Girl Guide in Ulster, Catholic Guides of Ireland, Scouts NI, Scout Foundation, which looks after Scout in Ireland groups, and then the Boys Brigade and the Girls Brigade. And between our groups, we have um, over 10,300 volunteers um, who work with almost 52,000 individual youth members. Um, this year has been, like all organisations, really challenging for us. I'm just going to outline some of the, the main challenges. First one is really the challenge to our volunteers. Um, volunteers are what it says on the pin, so they, they volunteer in their spare time. A lot of our volunteers are key workers. They're working from home, they own businesses. Um, and their parents as well. And over 30% of our volunteers are over the age of um, 55, so we're in the higher risk category. Um, when our face-to-face -face provision was stopped in March, um, a lot of groups then did move um, to online, but not all of our volunteers are sort of tech savvy and were able to do that. Um, also, there was very much change in regulations around whether it was for online around safeguarding, um, or um, when we were allowed to meet face-to-face -face, um, in the summer and then a, a little bit in the autumn, there was constantly changing regulations um, that we had to keep our volunteers up to date with. And that was you know, really an, an overload for them and extra demands around risk assessments, PPE, things like that. And I think a lot of our volunteers felt really daunted about um, was the challenge of keeping not only themselves and their families safe, but then the young people that they were volunteering with. Over the summer and for September, we were allowed to do some outdoor um, activities face-to-face. -face. Um, and then this stopped at the end of September to move to the restart, which was predominantly indoors, unless you had an outdoor space at your meeting place. <laughs> and this, again, provided a real challenge for us. A lot of our groups meet in church halls and community centres, um, and a lot of them weren't open or weren't um, able to let us in. And it wasn't really helped by, I suppose, communication from the Northern Ireland Executive, because when you looked up their website, <coughs> under education, it mentioned schools and childcare, um, and it didn't mention youth services. So a lot of venues didn't think that we were permitted to meet. Um, and a lot of even parents and the general public um, find it hard to get that, that message through. Um, our groups then 
and have had basically no ability to fundraise throughout the year. Um, they would do a lot of um, sponsored activities, craft fairs, bagpacking, um, and a whole host of fundraising activities to subsidize um, membership fees and to provide um, programs for young people. So that has been completely stopped the entire year. And we're now at the time of year for most organizations where our membership fees um, are due to be paid and they go to our headquarter organization um, to pay for some of the program, safeguarding and governance insurance and a whole host of other um, services. And a lot of groups haven't met since March or some have met sporadically. So we can't um, really be asking parents and young people to be paying for their membership fees. So a lot of groups are gonna be in financial difficulty. And then that will impact on headquarter organizations because we may see um, a drop in, in membership. Um, our youth members as well, not all have an equal access to online support or online um, facilities, whether it's like poor broadband or they don't have access to the devices. So not all have been able to avail of the online programs. We also provided a lot of at-home packs, online badges, virtual camps, and a whole host of other activities throughout the, the pandemic. Um, but a lot of this does require parental support and with parents being under pressure um, through work and, and other um, circumstances, then this has again excluded some young people um, from participating. Also 22,000 um, of our members are under the age of eight. So again, that's a particularly difficult challenge to engage um, that age range online. Um, we obviously would prefer to be outdoors, but not all um, venues have access to the outdoors. And once the sort of um, we were not allowed to, to move beyond our our venue in September, that proved a huge challenge. And a lot of young people have said how much they valued when we were able to meet outdoors, um, especially for their mental health. Um, another huge challenge has been for the organisations that have residential centres. So they've basically had no business since the end of March and have fallen through a lot of the funding um, nets because they're not they're not tourism and hospitality. Um, some of them aren't seen as, as businesses and therefore they haven't always been able to access some of the COVID funded site there. We do welcome um, the work that Minister Weir has done on um, putting together a fund for residential centres and we look forward to that being launched. Um, and although this year has been a real challenge, we are more concerned probably about next year. Again, residential centres, there's no um, prospect of them opening anytime soon. A lot of staff in some of the centres had to be made redundant um, and therefore it'll be a whole rebuilding process. And we do fear that it may be the same for our groups as well. Um, a lot of groups will not be able to register this year because they won't have the membership fees. Um, so that could result in groups closing uh, or a dramatic drop in our membership. Um, also, we're worried about losing young people, particularly those who have not maybe had any contact from March or who have had sporadic contact in between and losing our volunteers. As I said, 30% are over the age of 55 and may not want to return due to changes in personal circumstances or um, health concerns. So we are um, really looking at the next probably three to five years and looking at how we can rebuild. So that's just the challenges we have faced this year. Thank you, Claire. Okay. Who wants to go next? Is there anyone else due to speak? Yeah. 
Yeah. June, I think. June, 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 June Trimble, Chief Executive Officer, Youth Action Northern Ireland. Do you want to come in, June? She there? Okay. She is listed there. Yep. She was there. I think a moment ago. She looks, she looks frozen. Uh, yes, she is. Yeah. You're right. <laughs> um. Okay, so um, Stephen Barr. Could I? Um, you think I might be frozen? Have I just missed being called there, Chair? You no, know, you're you're with us now, June. Go ahead there. Perfect. Okay, thank, thank you. you. Sorry, I would not want to highlight our problems with the Chair has just mentioned. No problem. So, and um, good morning, uh, Chair and uh, Committee Member. Thank you for your time today. Uh, to present and it's been a very challenging time for everyone and uh, we are grateful to be able to share with you uh, some of the challenges that the voluntary sector have faced similar to our colleagues with us today from the Uniformed Hub and the Youth Work Alliance. So I'm June Trimble, I'm Chief Executive of Youth Act in Northern Ireland and that's a Youth Work Chat 75 year history in Northern Ireland each year. We provide learning opportunities for around 9,000 young people and we support 181 local groups. But I'm here today as the accounting officer for Network Youth NI, and that's a voluntary network of 27 regional youth work charities that play a critical role in the youth sector that contribute to the regional youth development plan and priority for youth, and we are funded by the Asian Authority to do that. So I thought that I would um, take a few minutes to give you um, the challenges that our sector have faced based on our survey under three headings, loss of income, pressures on the workforce, and limited infrastructure. And then my colleague Stephen Barr from Start360 will share with you some of the examples of good practice and against the odds what uh, members have been trying to uh, achieve and reach out and support young people. So that's how, uh, what I propose talk to you about. To say we're a that we sent into you. Trust, um, Start360, volunteer organisation and those that support large networks, such as Volunteer Online and Northern Ireland Youth Forum. You'll see these all listed at the front of the report, but collectively each year we reach over 140,000 young people. We deliver 3,000 workforce qualifications each year and we deliver collectively 11,000 qualifications to young people. So with regard to the challenges, I'm sure this is no surprise to you at all, but 92% of our members reported that there was the COVID pandemic had a negative impact on finances of their charity. As you know, we're all independent charities and we provide excellent value for money. And for example, for fine that we receive from the authority, normally our charities uh, raise a further six pounds so that would be from the two million usually invested in our sector, that results in 12 million being invested in young people. So we raise funds similar to our colleagues from events, from residential centres, outdoor centres, room hire, membership, training services, competitions and events. But that has been severely hit this year. So I'll give you a few examples. My own organisation, 
lost over £228,000 between March and December because of loss of membership fees, fundraising and uh, room hire. The YMCA lost over £700,000, similar to what Claire described, because of the residential centres. And that meant that 45,000 young people didn't have an outdoor experience at Green Hill last year. And the YMCA, or the Young Horse Clubs of Ulster, lost money because there was no Balmoral show. So these are severe losses that are going to impact on the services and the charities next year in 20, and this year in 2021. And also we've had a lot of additional costs, as you know, to make buildings safe and to develop services online. The job retention scheme was used by some organisations, but where we could, most charities retain staff to provide essential service to young people. Second concern was pressures on the workforce. And this was very challenging for everyone. Move our staff from home to online delivery. You know that youth work is a face-to-face -face activity. We don't have the IT tools and sophistication. Our expenditure goes back delivery. We had to adapt our materials. Our workers had to adapt. We had increased safeguarding, and it was really very challenging. Our staff also dealt with, similar to all of you, they had to deal with personal, uh, physical health, mental health issues, homeschooling, looking after the elderly. So it was very challenging. I'll give you a quote from a youth worker from our and this is, I think this is the quality of uh, youth workers in the voluntary sector, paid and voluntary. Overall, the pandemic, stronger person and work, and highlighted my resilience to adapt to changes and be solution focused. But one of the stresses that was put upon our sector this year, which I think was absolutely unnecessary, was uh, the Education Authority pushing ahead with the new funding scheme. And this increased the level of anxiety and stress on our staff to such an extent that one of our members, uh, combination of working from home through IT stress, missed the deadline for an application, and now that charity face the closer, closure. Well documented that the scheme would bring hardship, and our survey showed that only that only that eighty percent of our members thought they would be worse off. Now I'm not here today to go into the pros and cons of the new funding scheme, but it's raising the fact that it was an additional anxiety and pressure during a very challenging time. We had organisations were not able who were then deemed ineligible in the middle of the pandemic in June. And not only were they dealing with keeping their organisations moving, but they were then looking at future restructuring, redundancies, and um, because of the funding scheme. So part of the new funding scheme but just to say it brought additional pressures and strengths. And I would ask the committee perhaps to look later in 2021 to the positive and negative impacts of the new uh, funding scheme when all the evidence has been gathered. The final point I would make is we have limited IT structure um, in, in our sector because our money goes on direct delivery. So apologies. <laughs> um, with an additional problem and challenges around cybersecurity, around safeguarding, around GDPR. I mean, many of our organisations do not have laptops and phones. My own organisation, for example, of the 48 staff, only uh, five of them have work laptops, and not one of them, including myself, has a mobile phone. So this caused great expense to many of our charities to get themselves up to delivering um, 
online. Despite these challenges and pressures, I'm very proud of our workforce, I'm very proud of our volunteers and our staff, and I'm very proud of the leadership that was shown in our sector to navigate this crisis. And so I would just like to hand over to Stephen Barr now to give some examples of this. And then I have four asks of the committee, which I would like to come back to before we finish. Thank you, Chair. Thank you. Stephen, Stephen there, okay. Not on video, but he's there. Stephen is meant to be dialed in by phone, I think. Yeah, he is dialed in, yeah. but he's just not on video. Stephen, can you hear us? Yes, I can hear you, Chris. Okay, go ahead. Go, go ahead there. Okay, thank you very much, sir. So, apologies for my camera not working. I'm not sure what's happened there. But since the unprecedented impact of COVID and the pandemic across our society, it's and its impact on our children and young people, really particularly from March 2009, it has meant many of our members across the sector have had the adjustment of their policies, such as safeguarding online safety, risk registers, developing new processes, procedures and delivery methods. The Vonglade community sector has been at the forefront of making these adjustments and continuing consistently to support children and young people, many who are most vulnerable and at risk. We have to remember, when most all services closed at the onset of the COVID um, pandemic, either temporarily or permanently, the Vonglade community sector services remained. Our members responded in the pragmatic created them available way, making a transition using digital platforms to sustain engagement. Many of our services then became saturated with friend, trying to respond to meet the social needs presented. And we've seen the sector consistently support a majority of clients using the blended approach across service delivery. In regard to mental health, emotional wellbeing, situational crisis, critical need, and supporting many issues as well. It was for real familiar with such as isolation, fuel, food and financial poverty, physical exclusion, homelessness, hopelessness, and employment, just to name a few. A number of examples of good practice have been developed and delivered to address the impact of this pandemic. The targeted services have been made available through many of our partners regionally, providing support for young people age 14 to 25. Across programs such as ESF and Peace 4, uh, supporting health and educational need, supervision, interventions, and parcel care. These services are focused on engagement and skills development around many of social and economic issues, such as drugs and mental health, independent life skills, personal development, citizenship, and hope, etc. Whilst advocating the key messages are laid coming from the Department of the Minister in relation to the pandemic and COVID-19. The heavier remains uncertainty amongst young people in relation to restrictions. The education and employment has made engagement difficult for many. However, others have brought them the opportunity to engage in online programs. Many of these services have had to transition very quickly, ensuring COVID safe teaching and learning environments, providing parcel care and welfare supports with many staff and volunteers, distributing Green parcels, all those laptops, etc., 
to promote digital inclusion. Some of our members reported the following examples. So the views initiatives like the Fertile Rainbow Factory, which opened on the 1st of May from East Action, providing online performing arts and wellbeing school for over 300 young people. And that involved quizzes, festivals, a lot of fun, and I reached out to the members, and it was particularly successful in reaching young people with disabilities and supporting families. As a sector we've consistently sustained a quality of work with many ESF programmes within the voluntary community sector, having just completed strictly evaluations from ETI in terms of quality improvement planning and COVID-19 recovery planning. So again, there, that's a demonstration of the quality and the investment and the leadership and management provided across our sector and within it. Start 360 was one of these, I'm proud to say, we achieved the highest outcome in terms of the ETA inspection framework. We're delighted, and again, it's, we've seen our sector develop robust COVID risk assessments. The processes are responding appropriately and safely, ensuring the needs of personal care and welfare of our young people and children are fully supported. So we've also initiated a lot of additional research and campaigns across the pandemic. Several of our members have completed their own in-house research surveys and campaigns on the impact of COVID on young people and youth work staff. These have raised some of the issues referenced above, as well as providing particular focus on some of the areas following the impact, which is safeguarding domestic violence, mental health, financial food, uh, poverty, and the impact on education, and many more. But Young people are saying about this process is, I'll read out a few of statements we've collected. We've never dreamed I'd say this, but I miss school and learning. The things I love most have stopped. And another member has reported that I have no access to Wi-Fi and find out the phone service so it's hard. My worker rings me and reads on Facebook so I can get a, I can get a bit and do the weekly challenges with my mum and that's really good. And just for the last one, some of the issues that's, that's affecting the work and we're supporting as a sector. This is one I have no access to Wi-Fi and five little phone service, so it's very hard. These worker rings me again and gives me a lot of support. And then there's lots of issues around mental health, drugs and a lot of social issues, which is she is a five from the Louis. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. Is that, Clark, is that our presentations? Yeah. Can I, can I say a very sincere thank you for all those presentations and indeed on behalf of the Education Committee for the outstanding beyond the call of duty work that you're all doing on behalf of our children and young people um, and, and recognise the, the extent of the challenges that you have faced as a result of COVID-19 um, and hopefully today we can identify those in a bit more detail. Uh, and, and follow up with representation to the Department of Education on, on your behalf to ensure that those challenges are responded to. Um, can I, in, in terms of the, the points that are, are being raised here, um, uh, I'll go through them um, briefly. You, Youth Work Alliance, um, Stephen, you obviously mentioned key asks there. So, right and understanding from the briefing paper that we're, we're talking about improved departmental engagement with key part sectoral partners um, to review the approach for the delivery of youth services um, 
and looking at the concept of voluntary sector clusters, uh, taking stock of the current management and, and administration costs within EA, um, stock take of the current approach outlined in the area-based funding, and uh, stock take on current approach to EA regional strategic funding. Is that a fair summary of the key issues? It's, it's a good summary, uh, and I don't know if it's a, a possible to kind of just a bit, but a bit more on that, just to highlight it mm. um, with some examples rather than giving you a narrative. Um, so, as, as, as has been said, the voluntary sector capacity, particularly in COVID-19, has proven something, that you can rely on it. And it's very, very strong in what it's delivering, and it's cost-effective, and it's of quality. And hopefully the videos we showed, I mean, they were meant to make that kind of come alive a little bit. Um, if you take the Youth Work Alliance members, the full-time providers, 65, if you include, June's already highlighted, the YMCA, 10 local centres, that's 75 local projects. And I'm going to give you exa- three examples of... Stephen, can I pause you for one second and just ask anybody that isn't speaking to mute so that we can hear our, our contributors clearly? I think so. Thanks, thanks for that. Stephen's making tea and biscuits there. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so I'm going to give you three short examples. So um, in that video you watched, one was Monkstown Boxing Club. Monkstown Boxing Club is in a, a significant unionist area where we need more provision to be, be delivered. In October, uh, the EA released area-based funding. Now, June was talking earlier on about regional funding. I'll be very clear, I, I understand the issues. Are. I'm actually talking very much about local, very much about the local end of this. So in October there were specifications released. There was none released for Monkstown Boxing Club in that area. They didn't come. They were released again on Monday. There was none released. There's one reason. There's five EA projects in proximity to it. That's not an acceptable reason not to resource the voluntary sector to deliver. Another example would be there's four providers in Portadown and Lurgan. One St Mary's um, Youth Centre. One is Seagull Youth Centre. And you've got two YMCA's in Lurgan and Portadown. Um, those groups, we've been working really hard in these clusters, getting those guys together. They have the vision and the capacity to deliver much more than what they're being asked to do. We need to use that network to deliver more of those local services. And my last example, I know the member has just highlighted a conflict of interest, so I just wanted to say, highlight this one. Um, yeah, on Monday, uh, the Youth Work Alliance had two members at the Educational Underachievement Panel, you know, given an input about potential for youth sector to help, to be useful, and the voluntary providers to be seen as part of that solution. Um, we were joined by the, the project manager from Streetbeat, um, and they were out, he did, the both, provider, both providers did an outstanding, but Steve was really, the panel asked lots of really interesting questions and highlighted how, how quality, good quality it was. The following day, the following day, a specification was released for the Woodville area. Now, this is a member who can deliver really strong targeted work, who can really ensure the personal social development of children and young people. This specification was only for generic work, only to open your centre and have kids come in, get, get the connection and they go out again, and it's a maximum of £40,000. 400 metres away from that centre is a significant EA provider who are doing all the targeted work. We need a completely different idea, and that's what we're trying to, across the members and the clusters that we have, and the engagement particularly with the YMCA and that as well, it's something here. We need to harness it, we need to use it, and what we haven't even added in yet is the part-time centres, the faith-based centres, and our uniformed colleagues, and how we can deliver local services with a completely different vision. So that's it, the clusters, Chris, in terms of highlighting the potential that's from that, and the vision is there. Some of them can do it tomorrow, 
really. Some would need two or three years. That's okay. But we need the vision and the department to push for a strategic change of direction to the voluntary sector providers. Okay. Thank, thanks for that, Stephen. Um, and I mean, there'd be some hope that maybe the independent review of education might provide some scope for that type of analysis and thinking, yeah? I hope so. Yeah. It would be well <clears throat> worth using it for. Okay. Can I, can I also ask, in terms of the Uniform Hub, then, um, obviously some of the key challenges faced have been around um, the, the shortfalls experience, um, the challenge um, for youth members um, and also um, volunteers. Um, how, what, do you have any ideas in terms of how the department can respond to that, how the executive can respond to that? This is your your chance to set that out. Does anybody want to come back in on that from Uniform Hub? Claire, do you want Hi. to come back in? Oh, yes, go ahead. Go ahead. Introduce yourselves. Yep. Sorry, Claire Flower, CEO. I suppose in terms of this year, um, it has been particularly difficult for um, all volunteers. Um, in terms of plan, we um, provide a service um, they have been extremely busy homeschooling. Some of them are frontline key workers, and we're still expecting them to um, volunteer for our organisations and have contact with our young people. So I suppose going forward, we need to think about the recognition for them, how we can support them going forward, um, and make sure that we are a sustainable organisation. We have grave concerns over loss of volunteers and young members. Some groups, through no fault of their own, have not been able to meet virtually or face-to-face, -face, um, and that could remain now for another possible three, four, six months, which would be 18 months in total. That is a long time not to have any contact with an organisation. And we just feel that um, there's real concerns and real difficulties about sustaining our members and our organisations. So any support that the Education Committee can give us, um, raising awareness and supporting us um, in the future, would be, we would be really pleased about and really grateful of. Yeah, I, th I think there's a real challenge um, with the... The sacrifices children and young people have had to make um, as a result of COVID, and, and rightly, the focus is on the impact on school um, and, and formal education, but um, the extent of the disruption to extracurricular activity and education has, has been so significant uh, that um, we, we really do need to take heed of that. Um, can I, someone else want to come in there at that point? No. Okay. Yeah, so, uh, yes, go ahead. Um, I just want to say about one of the. <laughs> sorry, Jonathan. I just one of the things the executive could do to help would be um, better communication around youth service when they're doing their announcements, just because um, a lot of the time they don't mention youth services, and then I think that really poses a lot of problems for our volunteers, for venues, um, for parents. So, sorry. Go ahead, Jonathan. I was simply just going to add that you know we want to have the provision there when we come out the other end of this. It's vital that young people have the opportunity to go along to 
all sorts of provisions, not least the generic type of work that we generally offer. Uh, and so if there's pressures in the short term in terms of leaders, in terms of finances, in terms of centers closing, we're not going to leave the landscape print better afterward. And so we need to put down, I think, foundations now, four, three, six, twelve months down the line, so that what we have bought and what we've been used to will adopt and still be there. This isn't final question for me, and this isn't a, a, a criticism per se. It's a genuine question. But what what level of engagement have you had from the Department of Education or the Education Authority on the the, the types of issues that you're that you're raising uh, today? I, I, I'm happy to say that we we have had opportunities to speak to yourself, uh, to speak to the minister, to speak to. EA and the officials, and there's an open door. I think there just needs to be maybe that more coherent view of here's where we are, here are the challenges, and then how do we work together? Because sometimes that's the bit it can feel a little bit like it's a statutory and a voluntary, and the two naturally come together. But how do we do that even better in the future so that there is a sense of partnership and that we can deliver the absolute best for the young people that we represent? Okay. I'm keen to bring the other members in. So can I invite Karen Mullen, MLA, Deputy Chairperson? Thank you, Chair. Um, thank you, everybody, for attending today. I know we're quite tight in time. There's so much I'd like to ask you, but I'll, I'll try and get over it. Firstly, I want to acknowledge the role of the voluntary youth sector and the uniform groups, not just in this pandemic, um, but overall, and recognise the challenges and that, that you have all outlined here today. We have, we have come here in them and the need to seek to secure the sector um, and invest as we go forward, because we've seen the vital, the vital role, particularly over the pandemic. Um, at this stage, I want to thank uh, Amy and Paul from Monstertown and Michael and Paul from the Glen Centre. Um, I have to say, the innovative approach of sending the YouTube presentation really gives an insight to committee members all of the work and the reality, um, the great work that has actually been delivered um, by the groups on the ground. And um, maybe it's all we can suggest to Minister Weir, maybe that he knows that. YouTube for the next one, but I have to say I was so proud watching it. And as someone who comes from the community sector, and I'm a secretary of my local boxing club, and I do see the difference of the wider youth sector, um, not only on our young people, but the contribution that you all make within to families and within our communities. In the video, um, the contribution that's asked, the contributors asked for our support, and we can say you have my full support. Just before I go on, the, the question I have, Claire came who had, had raised them around better communication for the youth sector. Um, uh, I suppose our young people here in my constituency in Derry uh, had raised that and identified that months ago. We did a meeting with the minister. We actually came down and visited a number of groups in Derry along with me and very clearly heard from the young people. Um, one of the groups, actually, some of the groups on here would have been part of that visit. So I would encourage you all to feed that into the minister as well. Um, and we recognise our communication hasn't been great, but particularly for young people. So, you know, we need to speedily rectify that. Um, my question is more, and I think 
Uh, it's for Stephen Dallas. But Stephen, I know you touched on some of this, but the, the sound has been really bad. So apologies if you have looked over this. You noted in, uh, in your briefing papers and, and, um, and then the update there around the fondant that owns uh, the, the fondant that's available to the youth service, the volunteer health service, and then the fondant that's available for the department. And I suppose in your key asks and your visions, you're um, asking in relation to de more decentralisation of the youth service. Um, I'm very, very keen and strong in partnership. Can you give us a wee bit more detail in relation to your vision on how that if more decentralisation would be, we would see as improvement and how that would look? Okay, thanks, Karen. Um, I have, a, I have a very light voice, so I doesn't even travel to the northwest. I'm devastated, but I know it's uh, on the speaker there. But uh, listen, in terms of the briefing paper and appendix, the appendix has an outline of what I think is pretty much been consistently the budget for youth services for about the last five to eight years. It hasn't really changed. Um, I think all members on the call, people on the call would highlight, would say that's the truth. There's been no big change in the funding patterns. So that really means that the Education Authority have been using about 65% of the budget for youth services where the voluntary sector has hit this ceiling and it's not going past it. And that's part of why we're asking about this review. What it would do, you know, I should say, I should say that doesn't mean that we're saying the end of statutory delivery. Absolutely not. It is always going to be viable. But there's a line in priorities for youth that a lot of us in the sector kind of keep repeating back to ourselves. It's that the voluntary sector will be encouraged to, and, to, and supported to provide those youth services assessed as needed. And the statutory youth service will continue to deliver youth services where there's no viable alternative. There are, there are 75 viable alternatives. In local delivery, and we need to utilise it. What it would do, Karen, you know, what it would do if we did this, it would, I mean, you can see from the budget, it's around £5 million for admin and management. That's out of a £33 million budget. That is a high, high proportion. You know, we, that was much better used, particularly post COVID, for local services, for services to children and young people. Also, I think what it, there's one thing I'd just like to highlight is our members rely Paul, the two Pauls you've seen in the video, they're pretty much the main mainstays of those organisations. It's very few organisations in the voluntary sector, youth providers, you'll see two members of staff. Very, very few. And it's a huge risk for our members. Because see when there's a change in post or somebody gets sick or like COVID comes along and there's a bit of an interruption in staffing flow, it's a real risk for voluntary management committees because they rely on that person. We should be focusing on two, three, four staff being in our voluntary sector providers and they can deliver on a much wider range of services. Um, and that will also allow more regional services to kind of come in and support the local partners. That's the impact. There's a, there's a ceiling. There's a glass ceiling that's been hit and it hasn't been changed in eight years. I think about eight years. And we need a, the department to really ask the Education Authority and ourselves, you know, it's, it's, it's a joint initiative here. How can we do local services better? How can we find another way to map how we deliver them? And most importantly, when we do that, the first port of call should be the voluntary sector providers in local communities. Thank you, Stephen. And, and you mentioned in terms of the Northwest, and I see the value of that in my own constituency, the excellent work that's been done here locally in the partnership. Just, I suppose, final point, Chair, we quick one again to go back to Stephen. How far on Stephen is those discussions with EA and DE? I missed the start of that, Karen, just the start of it. 
how, how far on are you in discussions with EA and DE in relation to that, those proposals in question? There, there is, in terms of, um, there's been lots of really good positive joint stuff, don't get me wrong, but there has been no strategic commitment to completely change how we deliver local youth services. There's not the vision or the idea that this is now what we should do, but COVID has highlighted it to our members. It has shown us that they're in proximity to EA services and we could do it better. We could use the budget better. Just as one example, we've got a historic funding pattern um, in areas like, let me go to Lagan Valley, you know, you've got in Moira, you know, we've a member in Moira who provide, who are going to provide a service there, but we keep talking about the service in Moira. But there are other areas in the round, more villages that are deliver, getting delivery of services. Let's look differently at that service provider stretching what they can do. Because I had a conversation with them yesterday. They're absolutely open for the conversation. But it won't be tomorrow. But we need the strategic commitment that we're going to do this. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks, Chair. Thanks, Karen. Robin Newton, MLA. Uh, thank you, Chair, and uh, welcome. Uh, we don't often get people coming in person, Stephen. <laughs> very welcome here. Thank you. Uh, and indeed to all the others who, who are uh, joining us by the internet. Uh, can I pay tribute to all the work uh, that is being done, um, uh, whichever organisation is, is delivering it? If those from the voluntary sector don't mind, I'd like to pay special tribute to the uniformed yeah, yeah. Uh, organisations. and. Uh, I speak. I mean, it's very impressive to hear that there are ten thousand three hundred volunteers, uh, and that's a, you know, society couldn't pay for that if it weren't uh, those folk were, were, were not volunteering. And I do have to join with Jonathan in, in, in saying that his expression of we need to come out of the other end of, of this, and that is absolutely. Uh, critical in, in support of our, our, our young people. Uh, I, I would just like Claire actually raised the question about the uh, um, the, the uh, residential centres. You indicated that the minister would be launching a fund later this month. Could I ask, um, really, what is your understanding of what's going to be in that <coughs> fund? And then what is your understanding that is going to be needed for the year ahead as well to allow us to restore services? Um, can I take that one? Yep. All right, yep. I'll take that one um, from a residential um, point of view. So I'm aware that there's a fund coming out um, later this month and it will um, hopefully help with some of the losses that we have sustained um, in this uh, pandemic year, um, which we are very, very um, happy about and, and gratefully look to the criteria um, involved in that. However, our centres will have been closed for almost a year, and in terms of trying to get those back up and operational again, we have a huge amount of work to do. A lot of us who have residential centres have had to um, let staff go, make them redundant, um, and yet we still have the overheads for these huge centres. Um, and it is very sad to see them lying empty whenever we should have young people using them. Um, we, we tried to get them up and running partially to do some outdoors, but unfortunately the restrictions then meant that we couldn't um, do that any longer after September. 
Um, we are aware that as restrictions ease, it will be small steps again, and we will probably or hopefully be able to do some day visits, some outdoor activities. But at this point in time, it is hard to know and hard to see when overnights and residential groupings um, will be able to stay at our residential centres. So we feel that it will take years to recover and a lot of support will be needed um, in the coming years to help us rebuild. Can I just push you a wee bit on, what is your understanding of what is being launched later this month? Sorry, I couldn't hear that. Sorry. What is your understanding of what is being launched later this month? Um, I believe there is a fund um, of a million pounds um, being launched for outdoor learning and residential centres. Now, I don't know what the criteria will be on that, um, and I believe it will be coming out hopefully within the next week to ten days. Um, and then we'll move more, but I really don't know any more detail on that unless anyone else on the call Sorry. Okay, well, if, if, if that is the figure you're talking about, at least that's a positive step forward. Absolutely. And something for you to build on then? Yes, very much so, very much so. Okay, thank you, Chair. Thanks, Robin. Daniel McCrossan, MLA. Thank you, Chair, and uh, thank you to our guests, uh, of which there are many, uh, and for their presentations and uh, very important information they're sharing with us. Um, I'll go straight to basis here because time is tight. The, the regional youth development plans were to ensure improved progression for young people, particularly by providing access to leadership training and apprenticeships. EA was also developed quality assurance systems, a framework for expected outcomes, and implementing management information system for all youth work activities. What has your experience been to date with any of these, and have you found them useful, or do you anticipate uh, they will be useful? Is there, Daniel, is there someone that, yeah, yeah, June, go ahead there, June, yep. Yeah. Uh, Daniel, I'm happy to, to answer some of that one. Um, with regard to qualifications for young people, you asked, and uh, apprenticeships and quality assurance framework, we would find that in the sector and in our membership, they would be things that we would have to develop ourselves. So there are five of our youth link, YMCA, Youth Action Northern Ireland, Start 360, that are providers of training through the um, recognised training centres for youth work, which would be through OCN at the University of Ulster. So we find that we cluster around areas and try to develop those ourselves back EA in terms of qualification. People, we did a survey last year and collectively, we, as I said earlier, we delivered over 11,000. But again, that's through income that we are generating ourselves and delivering and talking to the awarded bodies ourselves. They're not necessarily, they're based on the needs of young people. They're not necessarily invested in by EA. <coughs> okay. Uh, is there anyone else wants to come in on that? No. I just maybe just make a point around um, 
the, the quality assurance system, what, what has been good uh, over the last five years is there's some simplification of tracking the outcomes and the achievements. You know, there's an there's a outreach and detached framework. There's all these frameworks that kind of capture outcomes for our members. We did a survey with our members just before this committee two weeks ago, and we got 50 kind of responses to it. And one of the, the ways that EA are capturing their management information is a service called the Target Monitor. Very, very technical and very, very not interesting very much. But what is important in it is our members are saying it's pretty easy to use, it's light touch. What we're worried about is how maybe that information will be used in the future, you know, so we don't want to see it becoming just about the quantity. That's not what it's about. The Northern Ireland Youth Work curriculum is driven by personal and social development. That is a bit more um, intangible, you know, in terms of capturing the impact. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, and I take your point as well. You know, I do have concerns about having to raise or generate your own income uh, to carry out some of this stuff. You know, the EA should really be uh, providing much, a uh, much more significant contribution uh, in order to ensure the, these things can be supported. Uh, it, it is a bit frustrating, but certainly something we'll explore further and, and raise. I suppose, Daniel, what I would say to that is. You know, we are independent charities and feel a responsibility to have to generate our boards and our volunteers feel a responsibility to generate income to respond to young people. And we've always looked to the education authority to provide that infrastructure to our organisation so that we could then raise funds and then we could deliver services collectively together. So I suppose it's just a change in how things are viewed. I don't think the Education Authority could afford to pay for all that's delivered in the sector. And I say that, and my colleagues sitting around the table are probably going to strangle me for saying it, but I don't think they could. I think we are all required to generate uh, charitable income. Do you appreciate that point? It shows the, the huge work and value of what you are all doing in our community for our youth. But I'm sure none of us will turn our nose with this small contribution. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, Daniel, one of the things that would be helpful that I was going to raise, I have a number of asks, but one of them when you mentioned funding is, you know, it would be very helpful as a response to COVID um, and the impact of COVID, because we're having to continue with this online learning and we've heard and the blended learning and how difficult that can be for young people and for organisations, a small equipment grant for laptops, improvement of servers, dongles, all of that, a, a one-off scheme for the sector to apply for that would be very, very helpful. Now is certainly the time to do it. Uh, because if there is ever money available to the Department of, of, of Education uh, for such things, it, it is now. We're seeing obviously a lot of uh, movement towards online learning and, and, and purchasing equipment. So I think there's a strong argument to be made there as well because the support you provide to youth, particularly during this time, is critical. Uh, another point, uh, EA has been tasked with the role of developing a pilot model for strengthening participation in, youth in the youth service at local level, sub-regional and regional level. Have you had any experience of this uh, yet? And if so, how, how, how have you found it? And that's to whoever wants to take that, June's not specifically to you, it's whoever wants to pick that up. I wouldn't mind coming in initially on that, Daniel, if you don't mind. Um, the Northern Ireland Youth Forum would be one of our key members who are youth 
Clare organisation who um, have really excelled in youth participation and I know you'd be familiar with them um, and they've, they've been in front of you many times um, and I suppose it's very disappointing for the Northern Ireland Youth Forum at the minute, and they're facing huge challenges um, and their role is around participation locally and regionally that they are losing their core grant of £100,000 and the, the the board of young people there are scrambling around looking for how to replace that. So that would be my initial response to you, Daniel. It's worrying. Mm -hmm. It is definitely worrying. Okay. Uh, there's no, no one else wants to go, Chair. A final question, just if possible. Um, the Network Youth NI report uh, as key finding uh, four examples of good practice. Uh, can, can you tell us? Uh, more about these examples, and we would be particularly interested in hearing how uh, you think these good examples could be replicated across the system. Is that too, Daniel? Sorry. Network Youth NI. Yep. Daniel, would you, would you mind asking me that again? Because my internet froze just to prove the point that my IT is rubbish. <laughs> Uh, the, the, the Network Youth NI report uh, uh, key findings, four examples of good practice. Um, can you tell us again more about these examples and would you, uh, we'd be particularly interested in hearing how you think uh, these good examples could be replicated right across the system? Mm -hmm. Well, Stephen highlighted some of them, um, but I would really like to draw your attention to uh, the Virtual Rainbow Factory, which is an online platform and um, really rapidly developed by which is a live performing arts school and with an educational basis and it immediately turned to try and set up an online platform and they have classes every day for 300 young people throughout the pandemic they have family quizzes they, they, it just amazes me and i have a quote here from a mother who sent it in to me about it and she said um, having virtual rainbow factories throughout time has been a godsend for my extrovert daughter who couldn't see her friends. It kept her connected to others, allowed her to continue to grow and develop by peer interaction. And my view is that it is massively helpful to her overall mental health. A tension was down and her mood would instantly lift once she attended a session. And to me, that when a parent writes in and says, wow, that platform's working, that's yes. fantastic. I have one other example, which is very sad which is uh, a young person who's just saying, I have struggled with loneliness and housing issues since lockdown, but since we could meet... That's what... We need to get you a dongle, June. <laughs> the 50p in the meter. <laughs> did you, Daniel, did you hear most of that? I need to move on. No, I only caught the first example, Chair. The second is lost. Okay. Apologies. We'll try and we'll try and come back to that, Daniel, if we can. Okay. Can I bring in Robbie yeah, Butler, MLA? Thank you so much, Chair. Um, just to, I'll put on record uh, just to declare an interest as a as a member of Boys Brigade, Mac and Gold, uh, and this point I got my 15-year badge this year. I'm kind of proud of it. So obviously. 
Um, there's a con there could be a perceived conflict of interest here, but there, there will be none in my question. So I want to welcome everybody that has uh, given the presentation so far and for the work that you do. Um, uh, not pleased with Jonathan for having moved to the skies, but I'm the same whether it starts speaking yet some stage in the future, Jonathan, if that's okay. Um, I have a meeting at one o'clock, Chair, so I'm just going to ask a, a series of questions and hopefully we can keep the answers brief. <laughs> Um, okay, Stephen, first of all, um, much of the stuff has been covered, um, Stephen Dallas. Um, can you outline to us um, what would be the benefit of an increase in all sector delivery um, based on your model? Okay, just quickly then, uh, I think it would be around, uh, in terms of higher quality, you know, the EA moderate all these groups, it, there's no problem. They're, they're, they're ready to deliver more. And the ETA inspections over the last number of years and the Chief Inspector's report always highlights the same thing. The quality of leadership, management and delivery in the voluntary sector is high. The other thing I would just add on that is that the, the cost effectiveness is, is always clear in the voluntary sector. They can always be more competitive, always be seeking better deals, to be honest. Um, and that, that's something that can be done as well. And there's a different approach into staffing as well, you know, in terms of the recruitment and the processors for staff. I would just also say the biggest benefit for me, never mind all the financial and the quality stuff, we need a challenge in the voluntary sector to go deeper into collaboration with partners ourselves, you know, people on this call, you know, across the local providers. By really doing this and increasing, um, one of the biggest benefits of doing what I'm saying about this review of local services, it will drive local providers to deeper collaboration. That is vital. Yeah, thank you, Stephen. I'm not going to ask too much more. I'll only caveat it by saying that I do find um, the Education Authority you service to be one of the more high-performing and um, branches of that. So whether you take some responsibility for that having been there before, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do it, say that, but um, I do believe they do perform highly, but we should should be seeking improvements, more collaboration. So I think that last point was probably the most important bit. Jonathan, I'm gonna give you a chance here to, to repair um, uh, burnt bridges from your, <laughs> your transfer. Okay. Um, Scouts obviously have uh, possibly more of a, uh, an interaction with the outwork um, whilst I do believe there may be a package uh, coming very soon that has been worked on in terms of um, those outdoor centres, um, do you, what do you perceive to be a, any genuine threats to the viability and sustainability of outdoor activity? I, I think Claire has alluded to some of this already around, <coughs> excuse me, uh, around the loss of staff and key skills, and even. You know, the voluntary sector relies heavily on volunteers and will they all come back when they've had 14 months away and maybe had challenging circumstances in their own lives or they're vulnerable, how quickly will they return? So, so there is a manpower challenge and a loss of expertise. But I think it's also been the fabric of buildings because even when you're doing outdoor work, yes, some of it's camping, but it's also used in the residential facilities and bedrooms and things that we have on site. And, you know, 18 months of no use of a house you're going to fear deterioration of how much more in centre. So we're doing our best at the minute to inspect them, to heat them, to keep water flow, to do all the things to protect them. But that does come with a price tag. And, and so I've done some number crunching around our site at Crawfordsburg, and we're losing, I would go on record to say £10,000 a month, and that's what looking to see if were possible. So, you know, nine months, it's £90,000, but as has already been well rehearsed in this conversation, we're looking at another year of uncertainty where do we get members back? Are the restrictions lifted sufficiently? You know, vaccines, they're here, but they're going to take another six or eight months to roll out. So with society and lots of these things on pause, 
for, for a fairly indefinite period. And then once we get to the point of reopening, is there a confidence needs to be built up that's down to us in the voluntary sector, Education Authority, Department of Education, the Minister, the Assembly, who need to get the positive message out that we're back at that point and getting the confidence in the general public built up. Brilliant, Stephen. Thank you for that. Um, just on your point that Claire alluded to, I think Claire had said in terms of volunteers, the average age is over 55. Well, I'm not in that bracket, Claire, just, so, just for now. Um, I, I, I know the chair, we're <laughs> the, chair has a, the chair of the committee here had that milestone birthday next Tuesday, and he may be in that bracket. He may tell us at the end, okay? But a little, a little question for Claire then with regard to membership, um, membership fee issues and losing young people, losing volunteers. What do you genuinely can you quantify that for us? I mean, I know anecdotally from my own perspective here in McIngall, but that is what the burden looks like. Can you give us a sort of a more global picture of what that threat looks like at the moment, um, there? Um, I think we're not sure at the minute. Um, now is the time that we're doing our sort of our census and our registration. Um, we're projecting anything, you know, from twenty percent to to forty percent drop. But we we won't know until probably around March time um, what the impact will be. But we do fear groups closing due to financial issues um, more than anything really. And um, once a group closes, it's really difficult then to to get that provision back because you've lost the volunteers, you've lost the connection with families and young people. So we're not sure at the minute. We will know soon, but we do think it will be significant. Brilliant. Uh, I think if that can be provided to the committee at some stage, I think it is a genuine fear. And last one, Chair, this is for Stephen Barr, if he's still on the line, is he? Um, uh, Stephen um, had talked about some of the impact on you young people, maybe with additional issues. So I'm particularly interested in and around the support that's been offered to young people who have problems with addiction, whether it be gambling, drugs or alcohol, and what that impact might be, um, what, what that outcome is it starting to look like for, for those people. Stephen there. I don't, I can't see Stephen on the way. Yeah, Robbie, Stephen was uh, connected via telephone connection. Um, I'm not sure if it's still live. We can pick that up on Hanford even and Stephen. Yeah, we'll try and get you try and get your response to that. Okay. Thanks. Thanks, Robbie. I can assure you, you're definitely closer to the average age of volunteer than I am, by the way. I know it doesn't look like it, but I've been doing this longer than you have, so thanks. I'm going to bring in uh, William Humphrey, MLA. Thanks. Okay, thanks, Sharon. Thanks, everybody, for your attendance here today. Um, I want to thank you for the contribution that you make across the Saturday. It is invaluable. Also, at the outset, I want to pay tribute to uh, Arlene Key and Amaya and Mark McBride for the work they do in terms of the Education Authority. But I was struck by the, the point that Stephen Dallas made earlier about uh, restructuring uh, youth services. I very much agree with that. There is an issue around capacity, particularly, and it's well documented and established, particularly in unionist areas where there's a problem. And that's why um, the, the uh, invoking um, Monkstown Boxing Club is a, a good example, actually, because it's much more than a boxing club. Uh, and it's about giving leadership both in the ring and outside the ring and outside of the centre, and that has been invaluable, and that has had national TV exposure. Um, the reason that, that restructuring is important, in my view, is because if you take a constituency <coughs> like mine, where you have huge interface difficulties, diversionary problems in the summer, um, community tensions, 
huge levels of suicide and mental health issues. Um, that the closer young people are uh, to, to community organisations, regardless of who they are, whether it be state or uniformed, is important because those interventions are important. And so those young people having people they trust and know is invaluable. Um, recently, I facilitated a meeting with Mark McBride, with my councillor team, but I brought the District Commissioner of the Scouts and uh, the guides with me. The reason for that, I think there needs to be a greater joint upness. People have talked about money from the Education Department. You know, the reality is this isn't just about funding from the Education Department of the EAA. There needs to be a greater joint upness around this <clears throat> in terms of the Department of Communities as well, where money will go into some of these services in our constituencies and local government. Uh, so we can't afford wastage or duplication because resource is tight, particularly at the moment. So I think that joined upness is, is really, really important. Um, regard to the, the, the point that Stephen Barr made as well about mental health suicide awareness in the previous um, uh, presentation we had, I made the point, and I made it in the debate in the chamber last week. This is a huge. This is the other pandemic. This is, these are huge issues that we need to have a joined up approach around. Um, Chair, if I might say, I would turn to the to the um, uniformed organisations as I said, I declared an interest earlier. Um, the point that Claire Keane made earlier about information and clarity of information and certainty around information and speediness of information is hugely important, because um, I know from my own experience we had an activity day for beavers and cubs in September, and we were planning to do one for scouts and explorers, the older boys and girls. Uh, in October, the one in October had to be cancelled because the regulations changed. The regulations that, that, that were sent to the uniformed organisations were regulations that, that the EEA put out, um, and yet these were outdoor activities. We had a situation where it was couldn't do outdoor activities because they were seen as educational when they were outdoor activities. And so I think we need to take it in mind as well and bear in mind we're talking about scouts and, and, and BBGB and, and guides. They, they not only have the regulations to deal with in terms of what comes from government, whatever church they may belong to, some of them are independent open groups, but whatever whatever church they belong to will be regulations, and indeed regulations in terms of their organisations, uh, centrally and nationally. So we need to bear that in mind. All of that is hugely confusing for those 10,000 volunteers uh, that are out there, and and as Claire rightly identifies, and identifies there are not li different levels of capacity around the issue of. Um, you know, competency in terms of computers and the internet and all of that as well. Um, I do think we need to bear in mind. I read an article recently. There are potentially five, six hundred groups, scout groups in the United Kingdom that could be under pressure, um, and obviously there will be that will replicate across the other uniformed organisations. So whatever support, and Mr. Newton made a good point earlier. Whatever support government can give to these organisations is hugely important. Capitation is being done at the moment. Um, and there is, a, there is an ethos within those organisations, not just taking money. You know, we encourage young people to go out and raise money because uh, then they value things. So the, things like car washes and bag packs and so on, sponsored walks, haven't been able to happen. Uh, and so therefore money coming in is a huge problem. There will be issues, I mean, already uh, nationally, for example, Baden Pothouse in London is having to be sold, other scout facilities being sold, lots of people being made redundant. We need to ensure that these residential centres like Crawfordsburn, like Lorne, like Ganaway, like Ballyhornan are order chains uh, because they're so vital for our young people, uh, not just because it gets them away for the weekend, but in terms of 
building uh, uh, the, the, the young person and the citizens that we want them to become for the country. Um, but I am concerned, and I think we need to. Uh, what I would like to suggest is that we, we write to the minister. I raised this issue with the minister and with Arlene at the time about the confusion around the, 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 the information and the message coming out around uh, the October time about outdoor activities. Um, what suits the EA in terms of youth may not necessarily suit the uniformed organisations. Uniformed organisations input into these things, and the minister, to be fair, uh, I know has done some work about this and, and has had, had meetings, and I know he had a meeting with yourself, Chair, and, and some of those uniformed organisations. But that information needs to be clear because leaders need clarity and certainty, and we can't allow leaders to be in a position where they just don't know, or the headquarter situations where the two Clares, Jonathan, uh, and the Boys Brigade, the Girls Brigade, and so on, are not in a position to give that clarity um, to their members because, to be honest with you, they are doing a huge, hugely important job of work, and uh, they necessarily don't have the time. There may not be the infrastructure as we ripple it out across the country, as well. And and I, and I just think that um, in all of these things, we need to. This is about building capacity, uh, and you know, developing young people. There are huge challenges, um, particularly in our more deprived and working class areas, because perhaps the, per, the familial and parental support isn't there at the same level. Uh, so all of these things have to be taken into consideration. But I have a huge sympathy for the job work they do. I, I know the job work they do. I've been a leader for 35 years, and I, therefore I, I appreciate entirely uh, the work that, that is done. But we need to support them, and we need to recognise the challenges that they face and give them that support across government, not just within the Education Department. Chair. Thanks, William. Appreciate that. Uh, can I bring in Nicola Brogan, MLA? Thank you, Chair, and again, thanks to everyone for coming along today and uh, providing those presentations. Stephen, I just want to pick up on something you'd said earlier. Um, you'd mentioned about the, like the EA funding. I've had a local um, voluntary youth group come in Oma, and my constituent West Rhone come to me as well to say that they have fallen out of the EA funding specification. They're obviously very concerned about the future um, of their voluntary group. Um, um, like I know firsthand the work they do within the town and the service they provide for the young people. So I'll be uh, following up on, on that with them and um, giving whatever support I can to them to go going forward. Um, broadly, it's just it's been a very difficult year for everyone within um, the youth provision. And I think it's really important that after the pandemic that um, the youth provision is uh, revitalised. Apart from the funding that's been um, discussed heavily today, what other difficulties do you see in ensuring that revitalisation? It comes back to that silver thread that runs through all this. Is there's no one thinking that we have to completely restructure our local services. There's no one asking that strategic question, and it does include the uniformed. It includes all the it includes all the voluntary providers, and that understanding that there's a different way to deliver it. And then, like, just take the example of Noma. I mean, that centre is vital. That centre is absolutely vital. And they're going to have to go through a process that's going to be difficult for them. And we're having a number of conversations around that in the last few days. Um, but in terms of giving you a, uh, the reality of what this feels like on the ground, for many providers, it's another microcosm. Because uh, uh, on the 17th of December, the Education Authority Youth Services advertised a permanent post in OMA. Winoma Boys and Girls Club is on the doorstep. There was no discussion with them, first of all, can you deliver more? That's the vision. It's, and there's no, it's in priorities for youth. It is the voluntary sector should be the preferred delivery agent. 
there should be a conversation there first. And the, the reason why the, the, that centre, and a number of centres have said it earlier, the reliance of a management committee on one person is colossal. We need a different idea because if that one person, like what's happened in the situation you're talking about, that person's moved on. And that is a big vulnerability. So if we're going to nurture and enable the voluntary sector, that's why we need a different idea about how we deliver local youth services. Because there have been two people there, but a wider range of delivery in areas of need. That wouldn't have happened because there would be a robust structure that the management committee could stand over. No, I'll take that point. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Chair. Thanks, Nicola. Justin McNulty, MLA. Thank you, Chair. Can you hear me, guys? Are okay? Yes, go ahead. Uh, hi, Stephen, Claire, June, Stephen, um, Claire, and Jonathan. Thank you very much for your presentation this morning, guys, and thank you very much for the incredible work you're doing. And uh, as alluded to yourself, Stephen, the videos are inspirational. The work going on there in Monkstown Boxing Club and in uh, Glen Community Complex, phenomenal, uplifting, inspirational. And it's, uh, I shudder to think where we would be without the voluntary work of those, those 10,000 plus volunteers, where would we have been throughout this pandemic without their help? It's uh, frightening to think. Um, and I'm, I'm to put myself in, in a child's shoes and remembering my own youth uh, experience, youth club experience, the youth club in the stay, and I still remember our coaches, uh, Noel Murphy, Jerry Quinn, uh, Kay Moley, and I have very, very happy memories of the times in the youth club. And my Wednesday night, night highlight, the whole week, I was looking forward to my time in the youth club on Wednesday night. And I, I sure do think what it's like for children to have, have that, had that taken away from And, you know, from a physical perspective, from a, an emotional perspective, from a mental health perspective, I'd just like your, your, um, your views on that in terms of how, you, how damaging that will have been, that will has, is being to children and young people currently. I think, um, I think June would have a good answer on that from the work from Youth Action on mental health. I don't know if June, if you're still on the call. I'm still here, Stephen. I'm a, I'm a even Stephen, even better. <laughs> Stephen's back. Stephen's back. Stephen. Let Stephen do it. There you go. It was really frustrating. Sorry about that, Chris, but um, um, I couldn't get my mic on mute. But that seems to be a function. I'm so happy to hear. And I know Robbie asked me a question that's keeping this wrong. So, what was the question? Was it in mental health? Yeah. Mental health, okay, yeah. emotional health, you know, with not being able to go to their youth clubs on a weekly basis, or not being able to have a participation on a weekly or bi weekly basis, that being stripped away from them for so long, it's a highlight for so many kids. What about that? What, what's the impact of that? It's very, very difficult. The impact's uh, very critical. And what we've done is we've, I suppose, our sector, the reason of all the youth sector has responded and transitioned by implementing um, a blended approach. Just a, which means for those minority of, of children and young people, and I'll offer this, who present the critical leadership to the crisis, we have developed um, robust COVID-19 risk assessment processes to make sure that obviously we're aligned to the guidelines and to make sure that in those situations that those people can be supported as best as possible. It's very, very difficult even within this environment we're trying to try and get an appointment with ZP. And we know that some of the services um, that should be available are because of the pandemic as well. So we're trying to put in this place for common de-escalate and, and make sure that the appropriate protective factors are wrapped around them. And that's one's work. I know it's been alluded to by Robbie and William and yourself, Justin, so I'm hoping that's some way uh, answers your uh, question. 
Okay. Can, I wonder, can, I, can you hear me? Can I come in at all? Yes, yes, go ahead. Just that um, I would just have a very simple approach to that, and it's that we need to make youth services accessible to young people as quickly as possible where the restriction bias and um, moving forward because people need the opportunity whether they're outdoors whether they're going on walks whether they're joining in small activities as soon as we're allowed to have one-to-one -one outdoor work or whether we have small groups say in Clare Centre, in, um, in the Guide Centre, or whether we have um, opportunities for young people to meet in groups and use, use positive psychology approaches, which you support. We need to do that, and we need a strategy for that right across the boundary sector, moving forward from the house, so every child has access to outside education opportunities to build their resilience, to build their coping skills, and to begin to flourish again. Brilliant, June. Brilliant. Um, I just got a, a message from my youth work um, organisation, which, which said, what additional targeted help, support, and resources could be made available to voluntary youth centres to enhance their ability and effectiveness in connecting with young people in their communities at this time, especially in the context of the DEA directive on youth service provision being uh, through online only? That, that obviously has to be approved by the youth club and management um, structures. Um, at this time of, of lockdown, uh, health and well-being is a critical consideration of our youth. However, our ability to connect online with youth has been dramatically decreased within recent months, and certainly, certainly um, compared to the first lockdown. There is a fear of isolation, which could be potentially be imposed by additional targeted support, or be um, improved by additional targeted support and resources made available. What's your perspective on that? That's uh, yeah. I, I think Justin. I, just to come back in on that, we do need to support our volunteers and our part-time and our full-time workers to be able to use a blended learning approach so that they can both have face-to-face -face and they can provide fun activities and learning activities on that are different to school activities. So we need a training strategy help our volunteers and the staff and we need the equipment to build up that online contact so that it's good fun for young people that they're doing little exercises helping other people there's lots of little checklists they can do but we need to tool up and scale up our workforce to be able to respond because during COVID it really highlighted that that isn't our area of expertise in the youth service right the youth workers have done a fantastic job in the circumstances to get it online, but we need to be better at it to prepare for the future, Justin. Okay, two yeah. quick questions, guys. Sorry, somebody else wants to answer something there? Sorry. Yes, Jonathan, go ahead. Just if I can come in. I mean, our experience in the uniform sector has been when we've delivered virtual sessions, the young people are absolutely bubbling and their enthusiasm is really benefiting the leaders who are seeing the value in delivering it. But, but there is, we need to recognise that the school moving more and more online, that has led to some fatigue around it. So young people are less engaged, I would say, than they were back in the early part of the pandemic. And we need to move, when it's safe to do so, into the outdoor spaces and get activities going again that are safe to deliver when the weather allows and when the regulations allow. We, we, we have also recognised that it's not just the mental health of young people, it's also the leaders. And so we have uh, 
we, we've delivered a couple of sessions in the evening, you know, after work time for leaders, just to allow them to get away and think about protecting themselves. So not so much about training them to be mental health practitioners as such, but just supporting them so that they're getting their heads around their role. And I suppose the final thing to comment on is local groups all have the opportunity to apply for up to £1,000 of mental health and well-being funding. But a lot of the programmes that were developed were to be delivered outdoors, and these further periods of restriction have meant that those can't be delivered. And so the current state of play in that is that if it's not spent by the end of March, the money will have to be returned to EA. So if either we need that to be extended or if that's not possible from a public accounting point of view we need that money maybe to be ring fenced within ea and then redistributed in the new year okay new okay justin i'm sorry i'm gonna have to cut across we're we're, we're almost out the door of this uh, committee room here today Chris, so i need to give morris Chris, just an opportunity for a very final question here morris Morris Bradley, Morris there. Can you see me on? I can't see the floor. He put in the chat that he had to leave. Did he? Okay. Um, well, folks, I'm extremely, Chris, you I'm extremely Chris, sorry. I, would you mind me just adding one point to Justin's question very, uh, very briefly? Yeah, I'm um, literally getting thrown out the door here in about five minutes, so okay. you need to be extremely quick. Jim, thank going you. To say, Chair, if you don't mind to follow up on Justin's point, one thing that would help, and Jonathan's point as well, is that um, if we could support the Minister's request uh, to the Executive to offer vaccines to all education staff that have face-to-face -face activities, and that included youth work staff, that would allow our youth workers to get out there quicker um, and engage with young people again face-to-face. -face. Thank you. Okay, thanks, June. And thanks to all our witnesses. Uh, I hope you've found that uh, a valuable opportunity to put forward um, your concerns and ideas in relation uh, to how we support you and the vital work that you do. We really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, members, if I can try and move us through uh, very briefly the any um, actions from that session um, and and take a short time just to uh, execute some uh, committee business very quickly. Clark. Um, so I think the issues raised were in terms of um, support to the youth organisations, um, funding that they were unable to draw down, mental health programmes that they were unable to deliver. Um, potential for extension of some of that funding um, from the Education Authority. And then lastly there, um, a request to be included in a category for prioritisation of vaccination. Okay. Are members content to include that as actions? Agreed? Chair, yeah, so yeah, William? Yeah. Um, I, I think that it's really important in terms of to reinforce the point that um, Claire King made around the information. If you take example, the paper that, that they presented to us, the Uniform Club, in terms of the impact of meeting at venues. Um, at the end of September, I know this, as I said earlier in my in personal experience, outdoor work was restricted at the end of September, but indoor work was permitted to restart. Now, um, you know, the, the reality is no one can understand that, uh, you know, in terms of you could go to a hall, but you couldn't operate outside where it's obviously deemed to be safer. Now, 
those regulations cause real confusion, and we, we really need to be fair to these people. You know that they need the clarity because they have parents, as we will have people coming to us about the likes of the AQ. They have parents coming, and they need to give certainty. They don't have the the structures around them support necessarily that we will have. Um, so I think information from the department uh, for youth organisations, uh, uniform organisations, and youth providers is separate to that necessarily that goes to the EA and that, and I, that doesn't always happen and I think we need to get that specifically for them chair okay that's a that's a fair point William okay members content agreed okay members if I could move us uh, through the remaining agenda items very promptly then uh, agenda item three chairpersons uh, business can I extend congratulations to Mr. William Humphrey, MLA committee member, uh, on behalf of the committee on your award of your MBE. William, congratulations for that. Um, can I also uh, seek committee agreement to write to uh, our former clerk, offering our, our best wishes uh, in his new role and thanking him for his service formally agreed? Thank you. Um, can I remind the committee uh, that we met informally with the Belfast City Council Youth Forum uh, yesterday in relation to RSE uh, meeting? PAC setting out the key issues uh, has been circulated. Um, can I seek committee agreement to write to the Department of Education um, to seek the minister's response to uh, the report of the Belfast City Council Youth Forum um, on RSE? Agreed. Agreed. Content with that, Clark? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. Can I also advise members that the finance committee this afternoon will be uh, hearing from the minister for finance in relation to budget 2021-22. It's my understanding that uh, the minister has submitted his budget paper uh, to the executive on a number of occasions, but it is yet to be heard. Um, budget 2021-22 paper has been. Uh, submitted again, um, and my understanding is that any further delay may have consequences for the length of the related public consultation and statutory committee opportunity to scrutinise the budget effectively. So, um, members may wish to um, keep an eye on that committee session of the Finance Committee this afternoon, and that is an issue that we can return to. Um, okay, Clerk, uh, draft minutes. Can I refer members to draft minutes of the committee meeting of 16th of December? And uh, seek your agreement that that is a complete and accurate record of proceedings. Agreed. Agreed. Anyone? <laughs> yep. Okay. Thank you. Um, there are no matters arising then, and agenda item seven is correspondence. Um, can I ask the clerk to speak to the summary note, um, and we can discharge correspondence in that way, clerk? Yep. Um, okay. So. Um with me a second, just uh... I can I can while you're doing that, clerk, I can refer members as well to page two six seven, uh, where we have thirteen items of correspondence, and the summary note is included at page two six eight to two seven zero. Um, the only items that um, I thought it worth um, drawing out to highlight, um, the item seven point ten on page three seven eight is a response from the Education Authority with regards to poor procurement arrangements for minor works in schools, um, and members might wish to take a note of some of the new arrangements that are being brought forward and, and return to that um, on another occasion. 
Um, item 7.12, this corresponds from Heat Boss about concerns in relation to the guidance for single-use plastics in school. Um, and I'd like to seek committee agreement to write to the Department of Education asking what steps are to be taken to ensure that all schools are aware um, of the policy um, to permit the use of reusable uh, plastics um, and to suggest that that policy is made more accessible. Members content to agree that? Yeah. Agreed? Okay. Thank you. Um, and also, item 7.13 on page 410 is, a, is corresponds from uh, Parent Action NI asking to brief the committee on restrictive practice, seclusion, and restraint in schools. Um, members content to agree that um, and to seek a, a suitable date uh, in due course. Agreed? Agreed. Okay. Clerk, are there any other items uh, in correspondence that you need committee agreement on? Um, so there is some material at item 7.4 about um, from the department about the about looked after children, and also um, at um, 7.5 and 7.6 responses from UU and Stranmillis, again about looked after children. That acronym is going to be um, ceased to be used, um, and the, co the committee will want in further work forward work programming in due course um, to uh, update on that. Um, the other thing that um, uh, came up a couple of times today was just the, the uh, Gillen, the Gillen um, recommendations. So, item seven point nine um, uh, has several items of correspondence. Um, the Gillen recommendations are on child sexual exploitation. This links slightly to the informal meeting yesterday um, uh, on RSE. So. The Committee for Justice wrote to the, the Minister of Education that um, reply is included and um, it's proposed that the Committee um, write, it, write to the Gillen um, Group about uh, RSE in particular, um, drawing on yesterday's informal meeting and on um, the Minister's response, if that's okay. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. Okay. agreed. Thank you. Um, and yeah, those are the Can main. Yep. Uh, Members content to discharge the correspondence accordingly then? Agreed? Yep. Okay, thank you. Uh, agenda item 8 for work programme members. Um, the revised programme reflects comments from members at the planning session of 6th of January 2020. Um, and owing to recent events, the next few evidence sessions have been reorganised slightly. Um, I, if members are content, I might make a, a proposal um, that we or reorganise um, uh, slightly again. Next Wednesday, Clark, we're scheduled to have the Northern Ireland Teaching Council and ASCL uh, teaching unions with us. Um, I'm uh, wondering if that might be an opportune time to maybe invite the Education and Training Inspectorate to speak to us about the approaches to blended and remote learning um, that seem to be creating uh, a bit of a challenge as well, and to adjust the Action for Children briefing on emotional health and wellbeing to um, our session on the 3rd of February, which, uh, we hope, uh, which we hope to have the mental health champion. Is that a possible adjustment? Um, the, 3rd of, the 3rd of February, yeah, but um, CCAA, I think we agreed last week to move to the, CCAA, to the 20th, 20th rather than the 27th. Oh, right, OK, OK, due to the urgency of the exams issue. OK, OK. Um, well, OK, 
Um, so next we next Wednesday, the twentieth, then we would be having um, the teaching unions and SEA then on exams. Yeah. Okay. And then Wednesday, the twenty seventh. Well, members, could Wednesday, the twenty seventh, then um, be an opportunity to perhaps invite AQE and PPTC um, and maybe ETI on remote learning and adjust the sports programme to the Wednesday the 10th when there's availability there, Clark, is that right? Sure. Can I, I, I agree with all those suggestions and I appreciate your time is very tight for a person trying to get in all the things we'd like to uh, uh, scrutinise, yep. but uh, I think we need to be careful that we don't cram too much into the one session, particularly if we're requesting uh, AQE and uh, PPTC. I think that would be sufficient for one day, given the line of questioning that a lot of us would pursue, I would imagine. Okay, well, so just to just to confirm, then next Wednesday we have the uh, teaching unions and uh, on on, a, on the wide range of educational issues, and then SEA on public examinations twenty twenty one. Quick question on that is the the minister said that he would know um, the alternative arrangements by the end of the month. What have have SEA given us any indication as to what they're actually briefing us on next week? Um, no, the committee had originally invited them for something else and then okay. um, was going to ask them for the um, public exams update given all the changes recently. Okay. Um, perhaps um, members be content just to pause for a second, just to go into closed session, and just to um, consider a few of these items and then we can um, uh, return to open session to agree if necessary. Members content? Yeah. Yeah, okay, thanks. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed.
This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound.
This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound.
This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound.
This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. Okay, members, we're back into open session. Can I seek the committee's agreement to endorse the forward work program as amended? Agreed? Yes. Thank you. Agreed. Any other business? Members have any other business? No? Okay. Yes, sir. Yes, go ahead. I'd like to wish our new clerk well evening. Um, I know she hails from the, the Starks uh, town of Katie, and I know there are people close to her who'd be very proud. And everyone wish you well in your new role. Here, here. Thank you for that, Justin. Thank you, Clark. Um, okay, then, members. The, our next meeting then is scheduled for Wednesday, the twentieth of January, Room Twenty Nine, Parliament Buildings, in Vast Starleaf, at nine a.m. And the meeting will have to conclude at noon um, on that day. So we will be well ordered. Can I put the question that the committee does now adjourn? Thank you. Thank you. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed.